0: Today's episode of the Hidden Figures podcast is brought to you by Nubian Skin. Nubian Skin is a lingerie, hosiery, and intimates brand for women of colour. Frustrated by the lack of suitable nude lingerie and hosiery to match her skin tone, Ade Hassan decided it was time for a different kind of nude. So for all you beautiful women, next time you need something in your nude, head to nubianskin.com and enter the code HIDDENFIGURES in all caps for 10% off your purchase. This code is valid for all products and the offer ends at midnight on the 30th of June. So, hello everybody. Welcome back to, I think, the fourth or the fifth, I can't remember, episode of the Hidden Figures podcast. Um, I'm joined again by my last guest, Paul Anderson Walsh. Um, For those of you who listened to that that, uh, session, whatever it was called... um, we certainly didn't get anywhere, anywhere we wanted to in terms of finishing the interview. So um, we gladly invited him back for um, a round two, um, where we could kind of finish off. Um, yeah, where 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 we or pick up where we ended sure. up from last time, and and finish it off. Um, so a lot of what we spoke about in the last session was very much about your background, your past, um, where you've come from, and sort of how you've got to today. Mm-hmm. Um, but there were quite a few things that we didn't manage to touch on and that I would like to ask you about. Um, so I thought it'd be nice if you kind of started off with a question around identity. Sure, um, sure. We spoke quite extensively about growing up in the orphanage and what that was like, um, as well as finding out you were mixed race and all, mm-hmm. all these different stories. Um, and to touch on um, being mixed race, that was something that I really wanted to ask you about. What was it like growing up as a mixed-race person in the 60s and the 70s? What kind of questions did you have about your identity? How did society treat you as a mixed-race person? Just to, just to mm. get, get... Yeah,
1: yeah it's, it's a really interesting question because when I think about it now, Damian, I think about mixed-race being so normal. You know, the, when, when, to begin with, when we were children, we were called half-castes. Mm. Um, and so there was no notion of the idea of mixed-race or biracial. or that, was a, that wasn't even a thing. Mm. So we were just called half-caste children. And it didn't really mean anything to us, it was just that's what people called us, so that's what we kind of responded to. Um, But what was interesting, I think, was that, certainly for me, what I found was that when I came into a kind of a black awareness when I was about 10, I I think I told you the story of actually how I was shocked into that. Um, For the first couple of years, I wasn't really sure what to do with that, but when I got into my teenage years, Um, It was really interesting because black became, was was cool. Mm. So I found out I was black in 1970. And what was interesting was, of course, in 1970, these, we had a, the World Cup and these amazing people with yellow shirts and blue shorts I mean, yeah. took on the <laughs> sure. went, and you were going, oh my god these black people are so cool and suddenly <laughs> you thought just, I was kind of seeming to see there's some benefits it. then very quickly what happened was that the big pop bands of the of, of the era were, there were two bands that were massively important in the in, to us as children, mm-hmm. there was the Osmonds, that was a little white Mormon band from Utah and of course there was the Jackson 5 okay, yeah. and then overlay that with uh, Cassius Clay, uh, Mahmoud mm. Ali, as you, you all know. And suddenly there was this whole thing going on in our consciousness that actually being black was beautiful. And there were songs that were coming out around things like to be young, gifted, and black, and these kinds of things. And there was this really interesting shift that was taking place within American culture that was slightly permeating us in the UK, but we became quite conscious of it through our music. So when we got up into our teens, it was really about black consciousness. And so for people like me, for half-caste people like me, or mixed race people like me, it was then about saying, "Oh, okay, so so where do where do you fit?" And the thing that was kind of interesting about that was that my presumption would be that now I was self-identifying as black, then the black community would accept me as being black, and that'd be great, no problem at all. The only problem with that was that the black community did not, uh, by and large, accept me as being black because I was okay. kind of a little bit. I had this really, I remember, I always remember this really interesting conversation I had. Um, well, it wasn't a conversation really, it was something a bit more daunting than that. I used to work in, um, in fact I used to work in Tesco's in Wood Green for goodness sake, mm-hmm. which is, and that was actually where I interestingly got my black education, <laughs> okay. which, which is fascinating because <laughs> everybody that worked there, well, most of the p- people that I was working with were black, and it was the yeah. first time I'd really been exposed to people of colour outside of the orphanage. Mm-hmm. See, in the orphanage we were black, but I really didn't mean it. That was just a skin thing. It, we, didn't, it, we didn't identify that way, we identified as orphans and we were like all together. Yeah. So it didn't matter whether, whether you were black, white, white or yellow, yellow, it was irrelevant. You were just, they were, we, we were yeah. us and everybody else was them. Yeah. Was them. And um, But when I started working around about 14, 15, I was now coming into contact with guys that were wood-green guys or people that were coming from the Broadwater farm in Tottenham, and, and suddenly I had a really different education. And of course, you know, there were things like uh, the West Indian cricket team was just off the scale, and, and the, in pulling, you felt much more of a pull towards mm-hmm. your, your Caribbean side. Anyway, this one particular day that I can remember, just thinking about this conversation, I was working just stacking the shelves, and there was this really nice Trinidadian lady, an elder, older, not older, older than me, and she was a sweet, beautiful woman, actually. And um, these two boys, these two guys came into the shop, and they were what Caribbean people called dundas, right? So by which I mean albinos. Okay. And these guys came into the shop, and they walked down, and they had like... Same hair as mine, but it was white, yeah. really yeah. brilliant, you know, snowy Popsided white, yeah, exactly. Yeah. No pigmentation in the eyes and mm. all the rest of it. And as I was stacking the shelves, this lady, whose name I can't remember now, she nudged me like this and she said, hmm, that could have been you, boy. And something went into me mm. and I went, mm. what? And so from that moment, I had this kind of terror that whatever else happened, there was um, 14, yeah. there was no way I could ever go out with a white girl, that couldn't be possible because if I went out with a white woman, uh, I could end up with children like these dundas, dundas kids, mm-hmm. and I thought, oh my God, that can't happen. So that was a kind of flick to switch in my mind. I was always kind of, always shifting that way, but this yeah. was, this was like, a like, moment. Almost. this was definitive. This was, there was absolutely no going back from there. But that was kind of one part of the story. But then what I found out was that actually I was finding myself getting a lot more, um, Aggression from black men particularly I was, getting, okay. I was getting great purchase with black girls and great purchase mm. with black girls mums but I was having a serious <laughs> problem with black men, men and yeah. that was kind of a bit of a difficulty for me because I didn't kind of know what to do because I thought well we're guys now you know I'm, I'm a black guy you're a black guy and they're yeah. looking at me like you Your ain't no yeah. <laughs> so it's really strange so I think that there was it took me a while to kind of settle that down in my mind and I ended up thinking to myself I guess by the time I was about Eighteen, nineteen, 19 maybe, um, where I'd been really, really... C- it was really clear to me that although I had a black father, there was just nothing about me that was even remotely really was going to get, going to cut in yes. as far as being... As far as that. so I loved it. I was really into the kind of soul scene at the day, which was a whole yeah, other story. You were how oh, go no, down no. to Carnival We loved it. Yeah, I mean, we were, we were living over in Carnival mm-hmm. in 77. Yeah. But the thing was that... Um, I think what happened by the time I got to about 17, 18, I kind of decided that actually being mixed race could be a thing, and I didn't actually have to decide or I didn't have to decide well I'm either black or I'm white. I actually could be I could be both yeah um, and that was kind of quite helpful but then the, the 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 this definitive thing for me is if you said to me now, "Are you black or white, I would tell you that I'm black and mm-hmm. um, because I think that's the <laughs> I don't even know why I think this, but the, the, moment that, the moment that you have uh, I guess in my mind at any rate my black identity is driven by my, the, my, my father's Caribbean I, I don't know whether he's light, dark or whatever no idea mm-hmm. but it's driven by him so I think that I kind of had to find out um, I think there's a show now, isn't there, called Blackish. Yeah, and I was yeah. kind of, I'm was, i kind of blackish, <laughs> <laughs> you know, in so much as I know that I'm black and my heart yeah. is that way. Um, but I also recognise the fact that um, a lot of people were kind of looking; they're not quite sure. Yeah. Caribbean people know I'm Caribbean, I guess. Yeah. Um, but people that are not Caribbean kind of, Yeah. Like, where are you from? Well, you know, it's, and that's the kind of interesting thing. So I,
0: I remember you saying in the last um, podcast how... Um, you know, at the time, if you came to London, my granddad spoke about this a lot of times as well, when you came to London in the 60s and 70s, you used to see signs saying no blacks, no dogs, no oh Irish. Oh, gosh, yeah, yeah. And you sure. said that you felt like kind of the mixed race, your your generation of mixed race kids were, were the dogs of the yeah, blacks and the Irish. definitely. Um, if you could kind of speak to that and sort of what, what general society's reaction was to... Because I'm sure at, at, at that time, being mixed race was rare, really. Um, I might be wrong, but...
1: I think. Was some yeah, to you? I mean, I think the sense of it I got was very much about recognizing that um, there was one thing to be black, but if you were a mixed race child, and in those days most likely from a white mother, the, the kind of the dark forces of racism were saying you were worse than uh, black people because a white woman uh-huh. had been violated in order for you to be born. I see. So it was a yeah. kind of whole... Is that more from the white side then, I guess? Oh yeah, yeah. the black side wasn't that, the, the black side was, was not really about that. I think because the thing that was interesting about the black side is that it was more of um, I certainly, if it, this sounds so stupid to say this in 2018, but maybe it's not. But I think the thing that, about the black side was when you were, in, particularly when you started to be with uh, Meet black families. Mm. Um, you know, I can well remember, well remember meeting a girlfriend and her parents saying, to, saying to her mother, openly saying, "Oh my gosh, what your children may have nice hair." Yeah. You yeah know, this kind it of, it's, like, what? As well. yeah, it's why? Why are people talking yeah. about in 2018? What no yeah, nonsense yeah. is that? But, they, but this kid's got good prospects because he's, you know, the hair's yeah. going to be soft and all this sort of stupidness. Yeah. And that's kind of that's such a it feels to me such an. Arc back to our slave mentality exactly, yeah. and all that, but anyway, that being that aside, I think that the it was that notion that a white woman, a white person, had been intimate with a black man, mm. that was kind of felt as though that this, when we were children, that the white racist type yeah. white people just couldn't get on with that. Yeah. I, I remember being. Um, Going to um, see Tottenham play, um, as you know, I'm a mad Spurs fan. I used to go all the time. I had some friends at the time who were playing for Spurs in that particular era I'm thinking of. And one of them was a guy called Chris Houghton. Chris is now the manager of, manager of Brighton. Brighton yeah. And he was uh, played fullback for Tottenham. Yeah, and I remember being in the Chelsea, uh, well, not in Chelsea, but in this kind of mixed stand. And this guy started to rip into Chris Hewton mm. and he was, he started on our black players and he was just screaming at the black Tottenham players, but he saved his absolute <sighs> hatred for Chris Hewton mm. and it was like, he's even effing worse because he's an effing this that, and the other. And yeah. I thought, well, how, um, damn, yeah. people, 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 I mean, not you can call that thinking, it yeah, doesn't, quite, yeah. doesn't quite reach that threshold, but yeah. people can actually, that's a thing? Yeah. Crikey! And, and that really struck me, you know. I was, really, I was kind of really shocked about that. And I think what, what I was insulated from as a child is because, so our most mixed-race children of my generation would be Irish Caribbean or Irish African, mm-hmm. um, specifically Irish Nigerian or Irish yeah. Caribbean. So that would be the typical mix in the 60s when I was born. Um, and, so the, and, and typically the white people that we were with were Irish. Mm-hmm. And they were they were dogs just like we were, right? <laughs> So so there so was sure, yeah that's yeah, yeah. right. And and funnily I was in I, I was at a meeting. Oh gosh, a couple of years ago. Um, and funnily enough, the um, the MP I was at the same meeting with the MP for Tottenham, who Dave, Dave David Blamey. Yeah. And David said something really interesting. We were just chatting off kind of offline, and he said what was really inter- what and a really interesting trend that they were seeing was the amount of uh, Eastern European women that are having black children. Oh, I didn't even know that it's before. a yeah. it's a major thing, and funnily enough, uh, Haley and I were just at like this Chinese takeaway getting some food, not not long after I was talking to David, and um, this woman came in and she's a, a white lady and she came in with a mixed race child, kind of darker skin than I am, and she just started talking in Polish and I was thinking, oh, who's she talking to? Yeah. And the kids <laughs> started talking, talking back in part, and I'm thinking, God, what the hell's happening? happening? Yeah. And it was what really struck me as interesting was I thought. That is fascinating because so sort the of sixty years on from when I was born or fifty eight years my mm-hmm. guess but that so many generations on yeah. now we 've got this new wave of what, what hit me Damini, we 've got this new wave of immigrants that are coming from the eastern from Eastern Europe, and the people they feel confederate with the people they feel connected to yeah. are still the Caribbean and the African yeah. or particularly the Caribbean and that made me wonder to the extent and what, what I thought was, and I don't know whether this is a right thought or a bad thought, but it just was my thought, was it was interesting how it felt like that that Caribbean community hadn't actually moved on any. Yeah. I was I was about to say you that. You see what I mean? Of, it was very strange. It was really with,
0: strange. It was like that the black community, um, the Irish community were social outcasts. And you know, growing up growing up in the UK now, I know certainly when when I was really young there was still a bit of um animosity towards Irish people, the IRA was still crazy. Yeah, that was crazy. The yeah, was that was crazy there was still the, the, the civil war happening. Um, but as um times progress now Irish people just white people as far as I'm concerned. I think the way society sees it, um, and they're not so so much of a, s they're not so much of an outcast in society's terms. But but more now inter- yeah they're more integrated. But as you were saying kind of Eastern Europe Europeans I think we certainly saw this in the outcome of the Brexit, or after the Brexit vote, um, there was a lot of animosity towards Eastern European Oh, um, absolutely. People. And again, I think, I think it kind of, as you were saying, highlights almost how the black community hasn't moved out from that I social think.
1: outcast. It's still in the, exactly yeah. I think it's still I think it's still in the lowest socioeconomic communities, community yes yeah, and definitely. I think it's still suffering from the same the big social justice issues mm. and therefore the new immigrant community that're coming in are gravitating to those same kind of sinkhole communities exactly. and therefore they' unsurprisingly their connections are exactly, with yeah. people in that community and I just thought that was kind of interesting I thought wow you know 50, 60 years on, mm-hmm. it feels like a bit of a scratch record, and mm-hmm. I, I just thought that was—I thought that was interesting. And and ever since that, you know, when you get that consciousness about something, I keep now noticing all these mixed race children yeah. that, are, that are Eastern European, and it just yeah. thinks, yeah, that's you crazy.
0: That's crazy. So interestingly, kind of given that, um, you to take a step back, actually. Yeah, sure. One thing I find interesting with Obama, everyone refers to him as um, America's first black president. Mm-hmm. Um and obviously he's mixed race, he's half he's half um white American, half uh black Kenyan, um, mm-hmm. half African. Um, but he's always referred to as America's first black president. Um and I think that is one because he is obviously black, unlike any other president before. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I also think like he he has a black wife, he has black kids, he's got a black family. He he by that I, I think almost when you have a black family, the the world almost now st- interprets you as towards that side I don't I don't know I don't know what you think about that but obviously I know your both of your wives have been black Mm. you've got black kids um was that a conscious decision I know you spoke about the the woman talking about the albino kids and that being in the back of your mind but was it a
1: conscious decision to move to your black "Quote unquote," move to your black side. Was it just yeah, no, something it, that naturally happened? It was. I think it was a natural thing. For it, it it was a conscious thing from mm. my from my perspective, um, and I think that I found myself uh, that didn't that didn't create any great difficulty for me. I um, mean, it happened that you know uh, that I had, I had ended up in relationships with with women of color, and that and that was there was no that yeah, wasn't like was a thing. Was, that was like a, yeah. that seemed to me um, that seemed to me like a fit. It didn't seem to it seemed to me like a really um, um I didn't even want to say culturally because I don't think it was really so much of a cultural fit because um the the reality is I wouldn't necessarily um <laughs> we this again this gosh this is not a good way to make friends having these conversations but there would there would there was I guess there would be in my growing up so the black community was divided around music.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Okay. So um, I don't know how much this is true in your generation, but in my generation there was a really strong divide. So you either had you were either soul, mm-hmm. or you were reggae, right? Mm-hmm. There was like and, and and they were it very different. And with great deference to my reggae sisters, mm. they weren't like the soul sisters, <laughs> right? <laughs> and I'm sure they were awesome, but they were kind of not my thing. Yeah. I was with the, I was in the soul side, yeah. But those soul girls, the black girls, that the soul girls were much more European. If you see, okay. it, if you see what yeah. I'm saying. Whereas the you know the idea of the yeah. the, the reggae the reggae girls different cultural Yeah, real. exactly, exactly. And if you if you've yeah. ever seen, and again, this is nonsense, really. But but it's I say it's. It's actually quite important nonsense because I think that um, whether what I'm saying is truly representative is kind of slightly academic because mm-hmm. it was how I saw the world, it was, the, it was the, the paradigm, the bias through which I understood the world and whether that's right or wrong, it was just the lens I saw it through. So I would look at the girls that were the kind of reggae girls, and they came in two forms as well. You'd have to have, you know, these the, the, the what they used to we used to call them the cashies, and these girls used to dress in um, really, you know, the plaited skirts and the ballet shoes and the mm-hmm. uh, and the Burberry jackets and mm-hmm. all the rest. And those girls, they were those girls were the smart, but for me they were a little bit too um, I'd say aggressive actually, if I'm going to be honest. Okay. Whereas the the soul girls, they were just. Different smooth. they was they was that's the word. They were smooth. And they were easy, but they were also as I say they were much more um, uh, much more European or perhaps Ameri- American, African American, perhaps is a better oh. way of saying it. That's actually a better way of thinking about it, actually. And and I always thought there was a different level of sort of aspiration and optimism, it was a bit more anger and rage and mm-hmm. stuff. Mm-hmm. And I found the whole reggae scene, with the big exception of, of Bob Marley, of course, mm-hmm. uh, to be kind of quite Oppressed. It was it mm-hmm. was the music of oppression. Whereas mm-hmm. I was thought that the, the the soul scene uh, that we were involved in of the seventies, with you know the OJs and all this music that was so optimistic, was very aspirational music. Mm. And it felt to me like the aspirational part of our community was much more involved. In yeah, that's how it felt to me. Yeah. So so I was then much more at home there. But also the other thing about that was that community was also much more diverse. So where we would have all of the all of our uh, all the DJs, or most of the DJs, with apart from, you know, my brother-in-law and Greg Edwards and so on, and maybe Norman Jay, but most of them were, were typically the big DJs were white as well. Mm. And it had a much more diverse following to it. Yeah. So it kind of felt like the the kind of drum and bass, the kind of, what well, we could not drum and bass, it was called the, the, the dub and all the rest of it, it mm-hmm. was the scene that the, the rest of the boys in the orphanage were really mm-hmm. into. Yeah that wasn't ever going to work for me. But interestingly, I think that was also part and parcel because um, I could hear the, the reggae beats as really being the beats of an oppressed people that were trying to find its voice. I could really hear that. And, and I must tell you about um, the, the, the kind of turning point in my, in my whole experience was, was it came in 74, 75, when a show called Roots came out. I'll tell you about that in a yeah. second. Um, but the boys that kind of gravitated and identified with that music, they, there was a sense in which the world wasn't working for them. Whereas, um, remember, I come to the orphanage at ten, yeah. so I had a different understanding. Different yeah, sparkly, and I kind of had a yeah. different set of. Um, I, I had different perspectives. So to me, I always thought that I was gonna, I was gonna have a chance. I was gonna gonna be slightly different, mm-hmm. and, and so it turned out in in many respects. So I think partly that's what drew me to. Um, the soul scene, and absolutely, that's what drew me to women of color who were mm. the soul sisters. They were never, I was never going to get on with the reggae girls, that was never going to happen in many years. And yeah. I, they, there was no connection, it just it just kind of didn't work. Yeah, and then I had this whole thing that I had to kind of figure out how to box off and make sense out of, which was the kind of black men that used to be involved in that reggae scene as well. They used to absolutely terrify me. I found them just so. Just terrifying. I've no other word to explain it. I just couldn't navigate. Why
2: you say
1: that? Do you know? It's funny. I've not. I've not really thought about it. Mm. Um, it's only coming up as I'm talking to you about mm. it. Um, I think because I. I think because I've experienced quite a bit of. Um, of. Um, um, uh, uh, um, how shall I say this? I think I've experienced quite a lot of um, aggression from. Um, black men mm. I don't know what else to say yeah. <laughs> and so I kind of like it's, it, it takes me a little while just to say it, yeah. just to yeah. kind of check it in yeah. with it and go okay what's that yeah. but, it, but what's interesting is that I think that um, there are that's there's, there's something in that that I kind of need to try and reflect more on because mm-hmm. it's very interesting because if you look at all my friends all black, all black, yeah. black men as well. It's, so it's something I don't quite understand, but there's a there's a little trauma in there someplace. Mm. But but I was going to tell you about oh I know I think I do know why actually if I'll be honest with you I think if I'm if I'm going to be really honest about it I because I'm quite um, um, I'm, I'm quite sentient so to me I'm very I, I watch faces. And Mm -hmm. like you, you're a good example because you have a yes face, right? So Mm -hmm. I, I, I feel like I could talk to you Mm -hmm. and all that, But some people, that face just says no, yeah. And some people, there's an adverb in front of that no. (laughs) Do you know what I'm saying? (laughs) And you go no. (laughs) It's like it's just too much, and that's a very interesting characteristic. And I see it with, I see it with certain people, regardless of their colour. Uh, there is a certain type of white person that I see that with, but there's also a certain type of black I person guess. that I see that with, And I was kind of seeing a lot... I was meeting a lot of black people like that. In the reggae scene, yeah, it makes sense. Do, do you know what I'm saying? No, I know no, exactly. It's kind of no. weird, yeah. Oh, no, exactly. I hadn't thought about that before. Um, do, shall I tell you about this Roots story? Yeah, yeah, Because that yeah. was interesting. So, um... <laughs> roots made me hate white people for a good two years. And days. me too. Gonna, yeah, no, I went no. I, I had to recover. Roots I went.
0: And Hotel Rwanda. Hotel Rwanda. was Rwanda. really bad for me. And then Roots, and then... Anytime time I watch those type of movies, I kind of need, need a detox. Then, yeah. Seriously. But anyway, sorry. Well, no, no, you're exactly, <laughs> yeah. it's
1: exactly the same experience. So what had happened, it was very interesting the way it worked because Roots came on, I, I, I think it was 74, it might have been 75, but mm. it was anyway, it was in that period. And... Um, we were just in our black consciousness phase, mm-hmm. so and it was all about you know Ali versus Foreman and the thriller in mm-hmm. the mirror and the rumble in the jungle and Ali and Fraser and all this kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And all these amazing black athletes were coming to the fore. So it was a real black power thing, yeah. and we all had our black power T-shirts on. Our black and it was kind of slightly ridiculous, but yeah. I was really into it. I was because yeah. I went from being the whitest black person that ever lived yeah. to being the blackest. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, I literally yeah, went completely yeah. to the other end of the extreme. And I went the whole Marcus Garvey thing and I was all into oh, yeah. it. But even though it was a disaster. Like, you were in
0: North London as well. So I was in Enfield. That's, like a, that's a hub, right? Yeah, I except a, I was
1: in Enfield. So it's a bit of a joke because where we were there was no black okay, people anyway. Okay. So we had to go, we had to take the bus <laughs> to Edmonton downtown. to meet black people. Yeah, yeah. But, um, but I kind of decided I was going to get really into it and then I said the reggae thing didn't quite work. But anyway, so one night this show comes on TV and it was serialised called Roots and I remember, and we also just had a black woman called Beverly come to be a new staff member, and she had started to do things that we'd not had done for us before. So she was came rolling our hair, and okay. she was getting us, you know, a coconut butter for our skin. Okay. And she was she was in she was, she was on it, and she yeah. was in my she was in my house. So okay. that ch- we were t- children with dispersed amongst these ten houses, and Beverly was looked after my house. Mm-hmm. So suddenly my house became the kind of go-to place for all the black kids because. Beverly would sit and do our hair and, yeah. as I said, do our skin and all the rest of it. And she would tell us about our blackness and she would tell us about our history. And she was amazing, this woman. She, she, and she began to fill our minds with this sense of what it meant to be black. Yeah, yeah. Right, and then this show came on and she said, okay, you have to watch this show because it's going to be very important for your education. So I remember I was sitting down and some of the other boys came in and watched it with me. Oh my gosh. I wanted to kill it. I was, I, I was going nuts. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I was so angry when I saw this show. I'd never, because it was the first real encounter I'd mm. had with what the what the, uh, the, the the slavery narrative was about, and that was really interesting because it was it was funny because I didn't realise how, well, I just didn't. It, I just like, what the hell's going on here? And that just sent me into a spin. And when I remember we actually went out. To go and find some white kids to fight with, just Seriously, yeah, yeah. We went out and we went. So we had an estate that was on the other side of us called the Padstow Estate, mm-hmm. and we used to have like gang fights with them. And we just all gathered out and went out. And we I remember doing it. I still remember the estate. We got we used to have these big um, trolleys and we got all the milk crates because there was hundreds of them. All of them was in the home, the them, because there were so many of us. And we filled all the milk crates up with all the empty milk bottles, and we took all the kids and we put tr- them down in our trolleys and we just went into the estate and we just started a near, yeah. Crazy. we were crazy but it was yeah. like what the hell all this about and it was I didn't know what else to do I kind of felt like I needed yeah, to do something yeah it was, it was like, really I, I, yeah. I'm like what so that was really interesting but that I think that turned something because mm. that then made me realise that actually this whole notion of I was beginning to understand then, what was going on in America with things like Superfly and mm. you know the Isaac Hayes movement and all that mm-hmm. sort of stuff. And, I'm, and Angela, um, my girl's name's got on my mind. Yeah, not Angela, but Angela, Angela um, gosh, I can't remember the name. So that's Tara dreadful. that's embarrassing. And Maya Angelou and all these black mm. activists that were talking really interesting stuff. And then I kind of started getting into the whole Martin Luther narrative. And then I had this really interesting choice, which was, oh, okay. Which of these characters do you think is the more interesting character for you, Martin Luther King or Malcolm X? Because yeah. then there were these two different narratives. Yeah, yeah. So I was one piece. Yeah, but, but and actually, what I ended up doing is I ended up thinking one was a regular guy and the other one was a soul boy. Interesting. Yeah, know, so, so I was with, extent, yeah. So I was with Malcolm, Malcolm, uh, yeah. Malcolm. Uh, no, I was with uh, Martin with Luther King. Martin yeah. King because soul I thought person, much who was to me the soul yeah. person type type guy. And interestingly, I remember when we were in um, the first time I visited Atlanta. Going into Martin Luther King's home was just extraordinary, mm. and being in Martin Luther King's home and just standing there and kind of understanding something of, of the fight and thinking about Rosa Parks and the whole story, her whole story, and thinking about how in my lifetime we'd gone from you know Rosa Parks, uh, what, there was a lovely thing that came out when Obama was elected. I think it said something like Rosa Parks sat, sat, sat in order that Malcolm would.
0: Yeah,
1: no, so that's that Martin... The Martin would walk yeah, in so order that, that Obama walk, could stand. So and it was really, and that was really yeah, strong. And yeah. standing there suddenly thinking, so here I am in Atlanta in Martin Luther King's home and just literally 10 yards down the road is the Ebenezer Baptist Chapel, where his, mm. his, which was his church. And then the Martin Luther King Museum is over to the side. And you just think to yourself, in my lifetime, are you telling me that has happened? And there's been some really interesting things like that. So I think about two of the big things, of course, the notion of Obama going from Rosa Parks to Obama. Yeah. And then also the other thing that's been enormous that's happened in my light generation is thinking about when I was that age, uh, it was illegal to be homosexual. That was against mm, the law. Yeah, yeah. And literally. now you you look yeah. at where we are today and you think, well, yeah, that's really crazy. interesting. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, yeah, yeah absolutely. That's crazy. Um,
0: that is very crazy. Um, so kind of also going on to... Um, on the theme of identity. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, we, we covered this last week. So for those who weren't there last week or ha- haven't heard the episode from the last session. Um, you spoke, you know, given the fact that you're an orphan, given the fire, given the given becoming a single parent, given all these different tragedies in your life. I don't know if I read this in your book, it was something you said last time, but you used the word of feeling unlovable. And I know that's often a feeling that a lot of people have who are suffering from mental health or depression or anything like that so I guess if you don't mind could you speak a bit to that to that like what your mind frame was like then and then also like how, how you were able to inevitably overcome it or is it if you feel like sharing is that something you still battle with or what exactly
1: um, No I don't mind talking about that at all yeah. I think what's interesting about um, the uh, about rejection I think when you when you're somebody that has been um, excluded, and, and you know, and obviously I can talk about exclusion on any number of levels, mm-hmm. but I think exclusion tends to do one of two things to you. I think, I think there is one type of person for whom being excluded um, creates in them the need to be affiliated and kind of pro social behaviours in order to try and win <clears throat> the acceptance yes, of the excluding so, group. Yeah. I think there are other people for whom um, when they're excluded that generates in them antisocial self-destructive behaviours mm-hmm. um, and I guess, I guess mine was somewhere between the two. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that the thing that I wanted more than anything else Damany was acceptance. I think that was really the issue. But I kind mm-hmm. of thought to myself well I was kind of doing the math and thinking so okay my mother and father didn't want me that's fine. My father th- Kind of uh, by the way, I don't know what the hell he did. My mother literally, literally swaps me. Gee, yeah. What the hell? So she swapped me. Um, you know, then I go to this foster home, and and that was a, a as as on the surface as simple as it was. It wasn't simple at all. It was a very complex home that I was being raised in. Matter of fact, I had lunch um, just this week with my foster sister, uh, and she was ten years my senior, and we had a fascinating conversation about. The perspectives that we both had grown okay. from that experience, yeah, it was really interesting. Okay. And then, of course, you, you know, you, you then get married. You have a very complicated marriage, and that was difficult. And then, you know, my daughter nearly dies in a fire. And so you're starting to think to yourself, actually, I kind of am bad luck, or what's that? I mean, mm-hmm. What's going on? Because everything I touch um, <clears throat> seems to kind of get broken, or it doesn't mm-hmm. work. And I don't know if I told you the story about when I was in. Um, I don't know if I told you the story about this when I was with my foster mother. Um, we'd gone into this supermarket one day, a little. You said you always break everything. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and it was like I was feeling that was what was happening. Everything got broken, and oh, yeah. I had this little broken girl in my arms, and thought you just break everything. Yeah. And then I just thought, well, do you know what, this God thing that I'd been holding on to, which is which was. Uh, um, I, was, I had a God that wasn't a God of my own experience. I was given a God. So I was given God by, you know, I was given a birth certificate, I was baptized, I was given a foster mother, I was given a God, and mm-hmm. get on with it. Mm-hmm. And so I kind of did. Um, but each of them sort of seemed to be, when you press them, they seem to creak a little But yeah, that's right. Mm-hmm. And so I just thought, well, I, just, I guess that must be the problem is, that I can't. It's not possible for anyone to love me. It's not even possible for God to love me. Mm-hmm. But I had this little girl who you know the, mm-hmm. who I knew. She and I had yeah. a had an extraordinary relationship, and um, and then of course the, I added to Chantal, there was Louisa, there was Francesca, and there was Paul. So we had the the the, the five of us were were little confederates. You know, yeah, we were a little team. And then thankfully, Haley came and rescued us and got, sorted them out and combed their hair, and helped them to grab <laughs> and all the rest of it. Yeah. But the, the really interesting thing was, I think that um, yeah, I just think you, I think I, had, I tried so hard in every environment that you put me into to make sure that I could figure out how do I get accepted. So, so, so I was always happy to set my identity and my sense of, of being to the side. Um, as long as, as, long as you wouldn't reject me, as long as you would let me stay, then that would mm. be okay. And and that was really that, that became really problematic because um, in every environment I would go into, I would kind of bend myself in order mm-hmm. to appease everybody else. Affected. Exactly. Yeah. And and you know, and I I, remember, I can often remember and I think back now. I think oh, I can't imagine how I survived long enough doing it because uh, you you know me enough to know that I've got lots of opinions about lots of things but I would always kind of keep them down it, mm. w- if I say this will they reject me if I, if I speak up yeah. about that so, so what's the mood, you know I take yeah. the mood of the room and then I kind of play it back to you um, very difficult actually very difficult but I think that the I think in the end uh, I don't, I think it's interesting to understand how did, how did I come through to, to my own identity I don't even know I know the answer to that I think that the. Um, I think there was a, quite a big turning point when. Um, actually, it happened in a church meeting, funny enough, where, where uh, I talk, and I do talk about this, in, no, maybe I don't talk about it, but I heard in a church meeting one day somebody said, somebody was teaching, you know, and they, they, the guy had said, um, he quoted a verse that says, um, You are accepted in the beloved. No, sorry, you're adopted in the beloved. And I remember thinking to myself, hang on a minute it was like one of those moments I knew it just passed everybody by but it didn't pass me by it hit me mm. right in the face and I went oh so I remember that Desi was adopted mm. and he had rights that I didn't have he mm-hmm, had mm-hmm. family mm-hmm. rights he had more yeah, rights I remember, you remember, your I'm your saying yeah, remember I told you that yeah that's she right she'd have to give you back but she couldn't but give she, she couldn't be Desi. Yeah. back and then I suddenly thought to myself are you actually telling me that i have been adopted by God. Are you mm. being serious about that? And, and somehow something kind it of... a whole different meaning. Yeah, it, it just it switched started. in my mind. I thought, yeah. that's extraordinary. And once I kind of thought that I was adopted in, in God, and I thought to myself, actually, for the first time in my whole life, I have a legitimacy that mm. I've never had before. So, mm. and that kind of began to make me think about things in a very different way. And so I, And so that was, I think, the beginning of a... Uh, It was the kind of first twist on the jar, you know, to open to take the lid off it. And once I heard that thing crack that first time, then it was about saying, okay, so what does that actually look like? So then I had to start thinking to myself, well, if I was an adopted child, how would that alter the way that I would behave around my parents? Well, Mm -hmm. I could immediately see that I wouldn't feel the need to... uh, to act up as much to i wouldn 't be as fearful of rejection i wouldn 't yeah. feel so kind of manifestly insecure about everything and so what had happened was that I then had this new idea of saying, well actually um, if i 'm not going to be rejected by God, if that 's true, and I kind of was a long way from settling that, but if that 's yeah. right then i 've got something to build on and then I was started to get really interested in in, in the scripture and really interested in the things of faith and that whole, I went through a whole crisis over that as well, but that's another, another conversation. But I was reading things like saying, um, there's, a, there's a psalm somewhere, I think it's Psalm 65, I can't remember, it says, if God is for you, who can be against you? And I thought, yeah. oh, hold on a minute, so you mean to say, if, 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 if I'm God's adopted son and yeah. he's on my side, then screw you, what do I care what everybody else thinks? Yeah. And I actually thought to myself, would well, you believe that? And then I went through this very interesting phase of thinking. I know that, therefore, it doesn't matter if people reject me because God accepts me. Mm. And what was interesting was as I kind of grew in that and started to get, and that that then would get tested from time to time. And some of the environments I found myself in really began to test that. And I read a verse in um, another Bible verse in Galatians that really perhaps became the defining verse for me, which was um, Paul, the Apostle Paul in Galatians 1 says, You cannot please both men and God. And and I knew I had a decision to make. I knew yeah. that my decision was going to be, you either have to decide that you're going to derive your identify, identity from what you think God says about you, uh, and, and I kind of a big journey on that, which became much more of an inner internal referencing, or you're going to define your identity by what people think of you. Which one is it going to be? But yeah. you clearly can't do both. Yeah. And and I think that that came to me. That came to me in. Wow, that's right. Did, yeah, came to that came to me in '95, oh, and sorry. yeah, I came to so I'm so I'm relatively recently. Yeah, well, to, you're the, in, in context. In, exactly. Yeah. So I'm, I'm thirty. So I'm thirty five. Yeah, and that came to me in '95. I remember it very well. It was September of '95, and thinking to myself, um, in October of '95. Excuse me. Thinking, this is a defining moment. You've got to make your mind up about that. And so once I once I'd locked onto that, then I kind of. Started to unravel a lot of the other thinking that had been about, um, you know, more of the. I often tell the story of the pretty woman story, where she meets uh, where uh, Vivian's character meets Edward's character. You know, in the in the in the pretty. I'm, I'm in the, the it's there. a really interesting thing in this movie, and she says he meets her, and she. You know, this plot of the story, right? That he's so that he's a rich businessman who's out coming out of town. She's in Hollywood. She's a prostitute and, okay. and it's a kind of ridiculous love story where they get married, yad, yad, yad. Mm-hmm. but the thing about it is that's interesting is that when they first meet, he says to her from the inside of this ridiculously expensive car, she's just started to get into this yeah. kind of career of prostitution which she's rubbish at. Um, <clears throat> she says, um, he says, so what's your name? He says, my name's Edward. What's your name? And she says, what do you want it to be? Mm-hmm. And, and that kind of, that was a real... Um, Commentary for me about how I'd lived most of my life. Mm. So, you would ask me a question, I would think, well, What do you want the I answer to be? Accepted. Yeah, what's yeah. the answer need to be? And so, he just all he wanted to say was Vivian, but yeah. she, her, she couldn't do that. Yeah, you what sort of saying yeah, there was too yeah, much yeah. at think, stake actually, for her yeah, yeah. because this is a wealthy guy, this is, you know, and so, and what would happen to me, but I would meet lots of people, well, I may hasten to, add, not in prostitution environments, but <laughs> just so we're clear, but <laughs> as a meta, as a metaphor, just for the record, yeah. just as, as a metaphor, where I'd be thinking to myself, this person represents an opportunity, this person has the ability, potentially, to open a door, or to help me escape into a better life, or to whatever else it might be. Mm. So and then when they would ask me a question, I would go like, well, what do you want to ask me? Yeah. I'll mean, be whatever you want. Yeah. And actually that, um, has taken me down some kind of quite dark places. I can imagine. Um, I can imagine. because um, not everybody you meet is going to be notwithstanding the transaction of the relationship they were in, but mm. not ev- not everyone's going to be able to transact that conversation within the integrity yeah, um, yeah because people are smart enough to go oh, here 's a real fool There's okay here 's what I need walk. you to be and you're yeah. like hey. <laughs> yeah and that was that was a big problem and, and that took me um I think most of the, um, most of the, I wouldn't call them mistakes now. Actually, yeah. um, I would call life lessons. Yeah, I yeah. would call op- reason, opportunities to learn. Yeah, yeah, have been it's because of that. It, yeah. yeah, have been because of that, uh, and and but slowly, um, and I'm fifty eight now. You know, yeah. So when I think about this, this is really, it's really quite well, interesting. It's, and I, I feel quite sad about this. If i have been perfectly honest with you. Now, if you ask me what my name is, I can actually give you an answer, mm-hmm. but, but I'll still have that moment of... Yeah, twinge really, like... Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'll still have, I can still sense it. Yeah. And it, and I have to really be very... Um, it's like the awareness of it that you almost have to... Um, yeah, absolutely, and it's, it's kind of almost like in technical. the zeitgeist of, how yeah. I, of the world I've lived in, that's just like... Normality. Yeah, that's yeah. it. And so, but it's taken. So, so, but in the end, now, as I say, as as fifty-eight odd years old, coming up to sixty, I feel like more able to to do that. But I actually had to, um, I had to get very angry with myself about that, and I had to mm-hmm. get really, um, kind of almost kind of militant with myself about it because mm-hmm. it was becoming such a problem. Because, actually, um, you know, I. um I really wanted, and I think, and it's interesting because this is kind of the work I do, is this whole notion of, it was, it's an irony. So, so if I think about my business, um, the, um, the strap line of our business is creating environments where people can be their best self and do their best work. Mm-hmm. And if I think about the work I've done, The Grace Project, which is sort of 25 years of work, is about discovering who you really are. Mm-hmm. And there's a kind of perverse irony that, I spent all my life helping people to discover them, yeah. only to not really know myself. Yeah, and that's yeah. kind of that feels a bit somehow a bit warped in, yeah. my, in my mind. But and I've seen you know one person after another after another find their freedom, one person after another find their voice, but somehow mm-hmm. still find that my own voice has been mm-hmm. suppressed. You know, mm-hmm. my own voice has been has been moderated to the to the to sing the tune that somebody else wants me to sing.
0: Yeah. Um, you know, I ask, I ask, I ask one more question. on sure. that. because um, you mentioned just earlier about how, kind of in, mm-hmm. you had to become angry with yourself to kind of overcome this, and there were times when you were certainly alluding to the fact that th- there are people with bad intentions, basically, who who, if you are a yes person, if you are someone who's always trying to please or gain acceptance, mm-hmm. they'll manipulate that situation, um, and kind of along those lines as a segue um, you'd also spoken in the last um, episode about as orphans you would just um, I, th- I think you used the term everyone was groomed for some sort of abuse in, in of course. some form of course. or manner um, and <clears throat> you know Recently, a lot there's been a big, well, not big scandal, but a lot of things are coming out about what was happening in the sixties and seventies. You got your, your, Jimmy Savile was kind of the face of that. Rolf Harris is is I think his case is still ongoing and mm-hmm. stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess my question is one, and I don't really want to go into too much about the details of what happened because I don't think that's important personally. But feel free to share if sure. you do. Um, but more so in terms of the impact that has and as as someone that's now older because you said like it was just it was just rampant across the orphanage and I know you spoke I think it was Ray who committed suicide mm. recently and mm. you kind of spoke of this despair amongst a lot of um, the orphans even in their adult age um, I know Gary Speed, the former Wales manager. There was some sort of suggestion that because of abuse that had happened to him a long time ago, he'd committed suicide. Or that that was the reason behind his suicide as well. I guess I, I kind of just want to know two things. One for for those listening who who might have been abused in 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 in, in their life, um, kind of maybe tools to to, to to overcome overcome the scars that 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 it leaves and. I guess also just to hear and understand about what, what that means to somebody. I, I, I don't know if that Yeah,
1: no, It's a good question mm. and, and I, can't, I can't fully answer it because yeah. um, I was very fortunate to be um, protected against actually being sexually abused. Mm. Um, having said that, I can tell you about the process of being groomed for that, I know, because mm. I was certainly groomed for it and I can tell you about that and that was actually quite interesting. Um, particularly because the social worker that stayed me from that, I met with her in Dublin a couple of years ago and we sat talking about it, and oh, I, wow. I didn't even know, which was what was interesting yeah. about it. I didn't even realise what was happening, but she, and yeah. I can tell you what she said. Um, I think at the kind of low end of it, um, damian there's a sense in which they're not necessarily, to taking your know, you, the, the original point, they're not necessarily people with bad intentions because I think there's a kind of polarity. So I think yeah. that the, the sexual predator absolutely yeah. has bad intentions. Yeah. Um, but actually, the, at, the, at the other end, it's just expedient. So mm-hmm. um, I work in, uh, for example, I don't know, um, I was originally in a sales environment. So mm-hmm. that was I, I, when I got into work, I was in selling. And I'm the worst kind of person in the world to put into a sales environment, because it's an acceptance-based environment, right? Okay. Yeah. Good people are people that sell stuff. Yeah. Regardless of who they sell it to, bad people yeah. don't sell stuff, and they glorify you. They send you on competitions. They send you around the world on airplanes, mm. having going to fancy things and give you cups and trophies, and you get a chance to be someone. So. It's a nightmare. The only yeah. thing that was ever worse than that for me was a charismatic church. Because that was, that was the same kind of <laughs> yeah, environment where this is yeah, just a disaster yeah. for someone like me. But the people that run those organisations, and I, 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 let me stay with the sales environment because that was altogether the point, is that if I'm managing people, right, and I've got two people that I'm working with, and one person is just desperate for me to accept them, mm-hmm. then I can kind of put pressure on that person to work and stay late stay, and do yeah. stuff and they'll just keep taking it and taking it yeah. and taking it where somebody who's secure and knows who they are might push back well I haven't got the time for yeah. your pushback I just need to get it done yeah. right so, 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 so fill the place up with orphans because that's, <laughs> that's just work yeah. forever all I've got to do every now and again is go back and go great yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah. come over to dinner tonight oh my god exactly yeah. and I can remember that I can remember that to this day when one day my boss in the insurance company came to me and said you've got to have you and your wife over for, for dinner I was like this is so yeah. cool, we've, we've, because we made it, we were going to cob them for dinner, You know, do you have mm. any idea what that means? Um, and it's so funny because you know I've taught at Cambridge and all over the place and traveled and taught all over the world now, and it's so funny to me when I think about how these systems are, are designed for, to, to kind of um, leverage that kind of insecurity. Mm. And it might interestingly, um, see we, a pressure that I didn't have, that people like you have who come from good homes is I don't have the, the, the leverage of of my parents needing me to be successful because mm. there's a whole other lever yeah, that's poor yeah. you know? that, that wasn't the pressure that I had but back to your your, your bad intention point um, so there was a guy that used to, that came to the orphanage that, that kind of latched on to me and he it was really interesting the way he did it because um, I was really good at football and um when I was, so I was in, we were in mainstream schools, obviously, but... You went know, to B- Bishop Stockford, was it? No, I went to St. Ignatius. St. Ignatius. Yeah, actually. the yeah. Je- Jesuit college. Yeah. And so I was in the, um, but the kids that went to the college, yeah, you know, we didn't have... That was the boarding... No, that was Blaisden, which I managed right. to escape in Gloucester. Yeah, yeah, I'm yeah. They yeah. are well, very well remembered. So the actual school I went to, yeah. when I got out of the... They uh, got off the hook for that Blaise yeah. School in Gloucestershire was Saint Ignatius, yeah. which is in Enfield the Jesuit College, fantastic school. Um, but the point was that when we want, so when we wanted to you know, play football or something, uh, though in those days there were these and <laughs> Alba was a guy called George Best. Who, of course, he was from your yeah. football team, and he used said the George Best had these football boots. They were sick. They were these black and purple boots, they were like the best things you've ever seen. Yeah. And the other big team was, man, it was Leeds United, and Leeds United okay, used yeah. to play in these, uh, these white, um, white, yeah, yeah and they had these league. like these, these numbers they had on their socks that were like, everyone was in awe of them. Uh-huh. And they had they all had these great track suits and stuff, but of course we couldn't, we couldn't run to that. We used mm. to get second-hand football boots with you know mm. wooden studs and the footballs we played with we were laced up and all the way. it was ridiculous. Yeah. Um, so this guy who came to the home, uh, he took a shine to me, and he used to come and watch me play football. So he would you know, one day he would arrive with a new pair of football boots and then he would ask, you know, can I take Paul to the game? And then he would take me to this game, and then he would introduce me to this other team, and then, so I was now not just playing for the school, but I was playing for a local side, Lee Valley, who was the big side there, yeah. and then I was introduced somewhere else, and so on and so forth, and every time he would be with me, and he would take me everywhere, and it would be one week, it would be boots, the next week, it would be a new tracksuit. suit, then it would be, oh, you know, uh, and I wasn't really conscious of this, but now I think of oh, an arm round me, and are oh, you great, and oh, you're not like these other boys, And mm. And and over a period of time, you kind of just come under the spell of this guy. So I was in Dublin, and I was uh, having lunch with this lady called Jo Bannon, who's a beautiful, beautiful woman. And um, she was one of my carers. And she said, oh, do you remember the time when she named this particular guy? And uh, I went, yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, he was great. she goes, no. Mm. I had to go to the Crusader rescue about him, and they lost my job over him. I said, why? She said, because... I watched you as a young, athletic, virile boy, over a period of time, become more and more and more effeminate in his presence, and I was so disturbed about what was happening to you, that I called the conference with the nuns. Mm. They didn't want to know anything about it, because they said, no, no, he's from the Knights of San Columbo, da, da, mm-hmm. da, he's a good guy. He's and all a good guy. The, huh? Yeah, he's, he's a good guy and all the rest of it. Um, and then she took it, she escalated it. And then in the end, she, she, she threatened to have him prosecuted because she was so worried about it. Mm. And then they kind of took him, he, he, he kind of disappeared. But it was interesting because um, it was a bit like, and I think this would be what I'd be saying to young people, children, particularly children that have real rejection issues. Mm. Um, it's a bit like boiling a frog, you know. If you if if, if he would have just physically touched yeah. me, it was he said, "Hello, I'm so and so," and then you would have left. I'd have freaked out. But he didn't do okay. that. He Slow, he yeah. just slowly socialised me over this thing, and, and and I know from some of the other children that I know who were abused, um, it was. You'll do anything. We we have such a. We have such a deep-seated need to belong, Damily. That when you don't belong to anyone, you'll be prepared to belong to anyone. Mm. And and I I I saw it, I saw it in some of the boys, that they would be, you know, it would be a touch and it would be a stroke and the rest of it. And we had, you know, I can think of some of the boys that were raped by Women, women, staff. I can think of some of the children that were sexually assaulted by nuns. I can, you know, it's just, it's just like unbelievable. Mm. But we were just like, just like shooting crab in a barrel. Yeah. We, we were just there to be taken. Um, I think in terms of the tools to to for for people, I think that's an interesting question. And again, I, I, I'm not as well qualified as somebody who's who is recovered from that kind of abuse to say. Mm. But I think one of the things that I found very helpful when I was trying to deal with the with what had happened to me as a, as a child was that I had some counselling once and the counsellor said to me that you need to remember that your mother is a victim as well. And that was kind of helpful because when I began to investigate my mother's story, um, I wasn't really pleased about that as an, as an initial thought, but when I started to investigate my mother's story, it turns out that my mother was one of two children, her mother and when she died in Ireland in Southern Ireland, where my mother was born, a, th- a man couldn't look after the girls. So they would become okay. ward of courts so and they would put them into workhouses. So my mother at six years of age is, is put into this workhouse. Oh, wow. And she, and I went to the workhouse, a place called Bannader in in a place called Tawakari in County Sligo. We went there, it's all derelict now. And we found some of the girls, the ladies, the old ladies mm-hmm. that were in the in the workhouse with her. And one lady told me a story. She said, oh, your mother was, uh," she goes, I remember the night your mother arrived. She had this beautiful long hair and she was a beautiful looking girl. You're really full of life and all the rest of it. And she arrived and the first day she arrived, they took her, they cut all her hair off. Mm. And then like a little short pudding bowl hair. And she said, she cried. Your mother cried and she cried and she cried. And she eventually she kind of found her strength a little bit. And she said she became very good friends with the boys, the boys that were the farmers because it was on some farmland. And this won't be wasted on you. She would climb out of her room at night, come down the drain pipe, and she would go over, and the boys would save her some of the potatoes they were going to feed to the pigs. And they would roast the potatoes for her, and she would sit and eat potatoes Mm. that were going to go to the pigs. So somebody who grows up in that kind of a world... How the how, how, yeah. how? What, 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 what would she have to pass on to That's me? She's got nothing to, about to, to pass on to me. So, so there's some sense <clears throat> in which I guess I realise that the need. I, I realise that um, damage people damage people. I realise mm. that hurt people hurt people. And I think that it kind of takes me a bit of a step back because I think abuse, sexual abuse particularly, is so devastatingly bad mm. um, that. There's something that needs to be said. That is that actually, the need of the abuser may actually be even greater than the need of the, of abused. the abused. Yeah. And I don't know whether we quite know what to do about yeah. that. Yeah.
0: definitely hear that. Though.
1: You know, so, so someone like Jimmy Savile, for example, because Jimmy Savile had celebrity. Mm. Jimmy Savile was allowed to walk in and out Stone Mandeville. Yeah. Or had keys to the yeah. place. I mean, it's just and, and it says something about us as a, as a society. Um, and whether it's whether it's um, Jimmy Savile or whether it's um, Harvey Gold, Weinstein, or yeah. whether it's, you know, Kevin Spacey or whatever, there's something about us, Damian, that is so blind to celebrity mm. that, mm. A, we'll let celebrities do anything they want to yeah. us, and B, we'll let celebrities do anything they want to other people, and it's like... Yeah, yeah, just turn a blind eye What the them. hell's that yeah. about? Until someone cracks the lid, it's almost yeah. like it just... exactly, yeah. exactly. But I see that whole... I've seen that... Um, that phenomena at work in places that I don't expect to see at work. Yeah. Um, I've seen it at work in, in football, of course. I've seen. Mm. I understand that. Um, I've seen it. I've seen it at work in the church. Mm. I can imagine that. And you just go, "How is that even possible?" Mm. Um, of course, I've seen it at work in the orphanage. I've seen it. So, mm. and it just, it's 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 distressing to me. So I think that um, I think the, the the one thing I would want to say to anybody might be listening that's been a victim of this, is that um, it wasn't your fault Mm. um, and you are absolutely the victim and you're not the one that's to blame.
2: Mm.
1: Um, And somehow what we have to do um, is we have to kind of allow healing to come, but healing, the one thing I know about healing is that the one thing that blocks emotional healing is unforgiveness, mm. and I know that as long as I hold unforgiveness and bitterness and anger oh. towards people that hurt me, I can't get free myself. Yeah, imprisoned. Absolutely, myself, yeah. and it's really, and I think that it. I, I think that the most self-defeating thing I've ever done in my life is been angry with people mm. because uh, it's it's and like really you tighten, me, yeah. yeah, you tighten the noose around own right. neck, and most right. of the time, yeah, that's exactly not even right. aware that they're, they're living, living their life. Now I hear
0: that fully. Um, so on a much lighter note, then. Sure. Um, Yes, cause as the topic of the, the, the podcast is um, just wanted to ask you about your career mm-hmm. um, so from what I gather um, and you can kind of fill in the gaps but you you left the orphanage you moved to, to um, what do you want to call it you moved to like, like, quite, Yeah, yeah. Um, and then I remember you saying that you just felt like you needed to move out of that environment because mm. it was too negative for one of the best. yeah for sure um how did you end up in the sales world you also mentioned that you were like a football you used to manage footballers yeah 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 yeah, yeah. um i guess which one came first how did you get into well no i guess the sales came because i remember you saying you left managing footballers to go to the bible school so i'm assuming the sales came yeah yeah Um, so so in
1: terms of in terms of in in terms of chronology when i was in lumber grove that would have been 1977 and my first job in Lubbock Grove was working for uh, inter- intercontinental, intercontinental Hotel mm-hmm. in Park Lane. And I was working, it was, okay. it was ridiculous, I was working as an, <laughs> as an apprentice electrician. It was a joke. I, I couldn't even change a light bulb. And um, I had this really big standoff with this guy who was the manager about something that, that you know, I have, I've always had issues with authority and stuff. And anyway, this uh, particular manager wanted me to do something, which I didn't think was fair. So I just said to him, I'm not doing that. Mm-hmm. So he said, well, you either do it or you leave. And I said, well, that's fine. I'll leave then. Mm-hmm. So we had this locker room where you used to get changed in that. And I remember talking to these Irish guys and they said, uh, what are you doing? And I went, I'm not going to talk to me like that. Oh, because I'd had, the, that's right, because I'd had a, I, I don't, that's right, I'd had some acid in my face, in my eye. It was not a not, you know, massive problem, but I had to go to Moorfields. And I came back, and then the guy was is one of his
0: Like a on the work, on,
1: on job accident? In, on the work? job accident, right. And there was no such thing as health and safety in those yeah, days. It was yeah. like, it was, go was back said. to work. And I'm like, no, yeah. it's dangerous. And yeah. That's because he wanted me to do something with the acid thing, and I was I'm not doing it. Yeah. So he said, well, you have to get out. So the guy said, so this Irish guy said to me, um, he said, you need, to do, you need to do what you're told, because um, the fact of the matter is your pride will be a problem for you. And I said, well, I don't care, I'm not doing it. And I, and I realised at 17... Um, I realised at 17 that I really probably wasn't going to be employable because <laughs> I just... I really don't do well with people telling me what to do. to do. That. I just don't do well with it. Yeah. So I actually left and, and went out of there. And then I was kind of wandering around thinking what I'm going to do, what I'm going to do. And then I found this... Um, it was actually... Um, I don't know if it seems still going. Is Capital Radio still a thing? Yeah. Right. OK, so capsule Radio used to be at... Um, at Houston, Warren Street, yeah. and they used to have these job boards up, and I went into Capsule Radio, and I saw this job board for this shop, and I thought, oh, okay, so I took it up, went off and said, anyway, I had the interview, and I really got on well with them, and I got this job working in this in this shop in Chelsea, I loved it, and I was there for, I don't know, I was, I was 17 and a half, and um, the, it was a jeans shop, the owners of this South African couple, they... Decided to close the jean shop down and open this really nice, really smart Chelsea boutique. And it was on the Fulham Road, it was magnificent. Mm-hmm. And um, they let the other guys go. The wife came to to run the shop, they were Mill Hill people actually. And uh, they came to take the shop over and I was asked to stay on as the manager. Which was like amazing, it was a big leap. Mm. And then I became the buyer and all the rest of it. And it was, it just kind of, I just, I was just good at it, I just liked it. So then we, I got to about, Chantal was born when I was 20. And um, by then I'd moved out of Labrock Grove, gone to Enfield, moved out of Enfield, gone to Tottenham, Tottenham to Hornsey, Hornsey to uh, East London. And then Chantelle was born, and I was back in Labrock Grove again. And um, I decided to, that I needed to make some money, because obviously Chantelle. Yeah, you've you know, got a family. I've got a family. And she, I, I guess I must have been to 22, 21, 22. So I went off and got a job at um, the employment agency, Brook Street Bureau. Uh, I was, it was, I was so bad at that. It was ridiculous. I was useless <laughs> at it. I lasted about three months, and they just said to me... And they, they, this lady had a really tried, gentle conversation. With she said, so how do you think things are going? And I went, yeah, yeah, you know, great. And obviously, did and she went, no, it's not that no right, <laughs> you are so crap at this job. It's hard to explain how bad you are. But I'd met this guy who came in, because there was a lady that I used to work with in the Hounslow branch. Gosh, I wish I hadn't asked me this, because like, my brain goes off yeah. on spiking. And he had come in, he, was, he, he, had, he and her were in a relationship and he came to me one day and he said, you shouldn't be doing this, you're better than this, you need to come and work for me. So I was about to get fired and I thought, oh I know, I'll call Roger, so I called him and ended up, he, it turns out he was in financial services. So I went and left the, i le- I just managed to leave Brook Street before it left me, went off to finan- this financial services company, a small little brokerage, you, this is years year to gosh, this is a long, long while ago, 80, Maybe, and um, started in this career of selling financial services. Well, it was fun. You know, it was all right, and we. Still, I was. I was all right. I was quite good at it because, of course, it was like it was a. I was working yeah, for myself. Root, root it was a, It was an, It was an acceptance junkie's dream. crack then. You know, yeah. it was like a nightmare place. So you get. You get medals and badges and yeah, cups yeah. and <laughs> applause. It was like great. So I was. I was quite good at that. And then um, they. Then then we moved into. We, there was a kind of a whole coup, and the management team that I was working for moved out and set up their own brokerage. So they took us all with them, and we had this great excitement to set up this new brokerage in in the West End. And then from there, I kind of um, that lasted a few years, and then I moved into I went to work for a company called Schroders, the um, yes, the, Schroder's yeah, asset management the asset management system. team, yeah, and we set up this uh, really cool sort of. Um, well, we didn't set it up, but I was part of this thing called it was, uh, the Retail Financial Services. It was really cool. And we had this really neat stuff, we used to call our private client stuff. We we kind of had invented this really cool little thing we were doing at Shredder's. And um, I don't I can't even remember how I got into it, but I had known about the same time I became, I can't even necessarily make all these links, I mean it feels so long ago. A very close friend of mine is Garth Crooks, and yeah. he and I. How would you know him? That's what I'm trying to remember. Um, I think I know Garth. I can't remember if I knew Garth before the football and through the charity. I think I might have first met Garth at the charity. At Scar, no, but I knew Garth at Tottenham. Anyway, I can't remember. Yeah. but we've been friends forever. Yeah, really really so, so, so we. Um, so I was starting, we were, we were running a charity together for sickle cell anemia relief. We mm-hmm. were doing some amazing stuff. We were doing all these nice events every year, and it was all fabulous. And, the rest of, it. and of course, I had contacts then that were footballers and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And so we started looking after their finances, and then what happened was... As um, in, when you said we, is that Schroder's? Or? No, so, sorry, that's important. So, we, so I left Schroder's, and we set up... How the hell did I get there? I don't know. Something happened with it. Oh yeah, I know. That's right. I left Schroeder's eventually. That kind of wound through. I left Schroeder's. I left Schroeder's when I got divorced. Okay. That's right. I knew that's this kind of, these certain there's bench black on. ice in my head where things I don't <laughs> recognise. And I um, went to legal in general, which I didn't like very much. And then it's I s- the yeah. Investment, yeah, I hated that. Yeah, I hated that. I used to work in that.
0: that in- I hated it. Yeah, it was, it it was, was well, all my clients were asset managers. I was doing consulting for asset managers. But oh, really? I just, I
1: just hated financial services. Full I mean, stopped. Yeah, it didn't work for me. I, I, I like the client side, but it, it yeah. got it very complicated. And the financial services that came in, I was all like, really, I don't want to do this. It's much too complicated. Anyway, the, the point was that we then set up a little a little intermediary and we were doing financial services as an intermediary for sports and entertainment people because that was that was my client book, those yeah. of the people I knew. And then we started to, uh, so we had some really cool people like uh, people like Dwight York, you know, uh, John Fashionier, and all these sorts of people. And it was really yeah,
0: was it was it because was it, was it obviously the three footballers you mentioned all black foot
1: footballers. No, that's it, a good question actually. Hugo Ekiog was another one of our yeah, clients. Um, no, one no, one they one, weren't. Uh, not at all. Some of them um, were, right. but those are, they the ones that just immediately came to yeah, my mind. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we had all kinds of different footballers, so black, white didn't make any difference. Yeah. And um, but what would happen is they were kind of referred one one to the other. I mean, we remember being it. one day at one of the Aston Village players' housed and Gareth Southgate turned up, and he was the one you thought, oh, great yes. to get him as a client. There was something about him even then, and. Yeah, well, he's no, well, who he is, yeah. So it's fairly obvious. <laughs> anyway, we didn't get him as a client, so. Yeah. But, um, but a lot of people started off in those days, and a lot of those people that were um, insurance sales guys became yeah. agents. So like right, so, Gary Lineker's insur- pensions advisor has so become like one of the biggest agents on the planet. Of course. Um, and so we started looking after the players, and looking after their contracts and all the rest of it, and just kind of just grew. Um, mm-hmm. And this little business called Partners in Sport, as it was then, grew up. Um, but then I decided in, in 95, I was, has, was kind of getting the whole, I was having this whole paradigm shift around faith and all the rest of it and decided mm-hmm. I didn't want to work in the business world anymore. So I left all that behind uh, and that business has now gone on and they've got, oh my gosh, it's doing fantastically well. Um, interestingly. Um, I've just been able to, it's a really kind quite, quite a nice... You said
0: lynch your son... Yeah, I was yeah, going to say, Brazil. it's really cool. Yeah, yeah.
1: So now they've got, um, we, I've kind of connected back with the guy, the, the guy who's my business partner, because I started the business mm. they're, they're, and then get on with it, and they've done really very well. Um, but now there's a, they're setting up a, a Brazil branch where and Paul's going to manage the business in Brazil. So that's kind I'm of, sure. yeah, it's, it's really cool. Um, and he's got a whole load of players that so they're working with over there. But anyway... Um, so then I went off to... I decided I was going to stop working, going into business and go into Bible school. This is. If I can pause you there, because yeah. I
0: think, particularly amongst a lot of people in my general... Like, I, I worked in financial services. I absolutely hated it. Mm. Um, I stopped and I moved to the public sector. I moved, well, No, I moved to higher education, so I work, started working for UCL. Um, but I've got a lot of friends um, who have... who. I think going back to what you were saying earlier about kind of acceptance, particularly when it comes to like parental pressure, a lot of friends and a lot of people who've kind of gone to uni to do like one of these sort of professional services type courses come out of it now working in professional services and don't like it. You yeah. know, trying to get back to whatever they loved when they were young. So, whether it was the arts or wherever it may be. Um, but more so, the point is that there's then this point where they almost have to take a leap of faith drop everything that they're doing drop everything that they've worked towards and start something new um if you could kind of talk t- talk to that experience you know now going to Bible school you you it sounds like you had a fantastic job you were surrounded by like celebrities or famous people at least um mm-hmm. and now everything that you sort of built towards you've now got to like put that to the side mm-hmm. and start again what was that like what I know you said there was like Guess you were having questions about your faith that kinda influenced that, but you know, what what was the driving factor, then what was it like, what was the reality like?
1: Well, it was it was it was ridiculously irresponsible, really, because um, it was a joke. Because we had, you know, we had four children, for goodness yeah. sakes. So Haley ended up having to do three jobs. And, yeah. I mean, she was great, but I can't remember coming home telling her about it. And she, and I felt I remember coming home on the train about to tell her about this decision I'd made. Mm. And I felt like I was it felt like I was going to tell her I'm having an affair or something. Yeah. It was it was that serious. But she said to me, "I've known you were going to do this for ages. It's, it'll be fine." And I was mm. like, "Oh!" And she said to me, "Just." Follow your spirit, mm-hmm. and and that was kind of that was really good advice to me because um, I was torn again because I didn't want to disappoint Haley, right? Because mm-hmm. she, I, I need her acceptance as well yeah. as everybody else's. So yeah. that's a whole another problem. So, um, but interestingly, um, I think for, for for young professional people that come from your generation that are trapped in this way, I think two things are important. I think one is that. Um, First and foremost, um, you need to figure out what you, what you were made to do, mm. and then you'll never ever work a day in your life. Mm. And I'm so sure in my mind that when I understand purpose, when I'm doing things on purpose, mm. that's not work to me.
2: Mm-hmm. That, that,
1: that isn't work. Um, now, I think what's important for young people is that young people don't get themselves mortgaged into debt and responsibility so Mm -hmm. they kind of shut the door on choice (laughs) because as long as you've got you know once you've got a mortgage to pay you've got children to feed, suddenly you become choiceless right yeah Yeah. you're 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 stuck in that groove Mm -hmm. and so often what happens you'll go and do work that is soulless because you a you've got this whole you need to but also you've got this whole parental thing that's going Mm -hmm. on Mm And and one of the things that we've said to our children is um, none of our, <laughs> our children have anything remotely approaching conventional careers. Yeah. But you know I don't care because I yeah. want them just to be who they are, yeah. right? Yeah. Would it be nice if my children were all lawyers, accountants? So, yeah, it would be nice, but yeah. they're not. So yeah. But it's if you knew my so. children, you would yeah. knew they're they're not supposed to be. They're not supposed account, to be lawyers and accountants. That's not who they. That's not what they want to be. Mm. And some people are, by the way. Yeah. But they're not. Um, we ran a um, just tangentially, but it's interesting. Um, we had a school once called the Grace Project Creative, and it went from about 2003 to 2007, I suppose. And we had a, it was a performing arts school. And, the, and so what would happen was we, we, had a, we had a, people were coming through our, through what was our spiritual community, the, the church that we had it in, coming on to training programs with me about their identity. And then we decided, you know what, there were so many people coming through our work that are creatives, why don't we set up a creative arts school? thinking that everybody that came to the creative art school would be people that were in the arts. Mm. But guess what? What happened was we would have accountants, lawyers, yep. Yep. Uh, actuaries, right. all these people, yeah. and you're thinking, well, how are you people doing here? And so what was we had a... a my, my role on the school was to teach the identity stream. I didn't teach any of the art. I do not know anything about it. Yeah. My, my thing was to teach the identity stream. And I can remember sitting with them one day in the round and just hearing their stories. And one guy said... You know, my parents really, really so desperately wanted me to be a lawyer. And so, you know, I did. I became a lawyer, and I've been miserable all of my life. Yeah. It? And they just started telling their stories, and they were all the same story. And by the time they finished this program, and I can go and I can point you to, to them now. Yeah. One's a film producer in New Zealand. Another guy is an actor, just done a movie with Keanu Reeves. He was, he was, oh, he was an actuary. Um, another, another, another girl went back to Sweden and she's a writer and so on and so on and so on, and, so on. and they, they, we gave them permission to yeah. be themselves yeah. and I think that was really important. So I think for me um, I would be saying to young people something that my, my daughter said to me once she said um, she was doing, she works, she uh, does some work for the Huffington Post and she mm-hmm. said to me they were doing this interview with parents and the question, she, she had five questions and the last question was who would I pick for her role model? Uh, and I said, that of all your questions you asked me, that's the easiest one. So she goes, okay, what's the answer? So I said, I would pick your highest self as your role model. And I think that when you have permission to be your highest self, mm. then the choices that you make, might not be the choices that your parents want you to make, but, but they're your right highest you. self choices. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So I think that would be important. For me, it was just reckless when I was 35, but I knew, yeah. that, I knew that I had to do it because I felt this... I knew... That I, I felt this desire to be able to, um, I just, wanted to I, just I wanted to, I wanted to just, I don't know, I just, I wanted to go on missions and do all sorts of things, which I didn't end up doing, by the way, but I wanted mm. to, I felt like I needed to, I felt like I needed to, um, and this was a mistake, but and mm. let me just make this clear, I felt like I needed to show I was serious about God, so, you know, mm. so that was like... So I mean, no work, no this, no that, I'm gonna to go to Bible school. And I was yeah. fully dedicated. And that, I kind of, that was an immature thing for me to do at that stage. Because I didn't, you don't need to do that to demonstrate yeah. your wholeheartedness yeah. towards something. You just need to be your highest self. Was yeah. it Eric Liddell said, God made me fast, and when I run, I feel his pleasure. I like that quote. You know, yeah, and I, I think yeah, that's right. And when I, I watch people that can play music, or mm. you know, some people that swim, yeah. or whatever else it is, and when they're, when they're doing what they're doing, they feel his pleasure. Yeah. It's just, it's a release. Because it's who you are, That's who 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 you're made to be. And um, so I think that the, um, so what was I going to say? So yes, I went off to the school, and what was interesting about that was that I had to learn this whole different economy. So I was used to the idea of being able to kind of, you know, work the client base and generate the income and all the rest of it. But now I was in this completely different space. And that was good, because I learned about, um, I learned about how to live by faith. And that was fascinating because suddenly I was seeing that we didn't have in the in we couldn't make the the, the, the balance sheet balance in a kind of natural way this would sound crazy to people, so I apologize but the the money would just turn up it was ridiculous, mm. but I found out that what I was doing is once I was in i wasn't quite in my sweet spot, but I was in the right space yeah because actually what I was going to learn in that season when I was in that Bible school and which then took me from the Bible school to being the first-year head and the second-year head and mm-hmm. then the director of the school, was actually that my gift, my thing, the thing that when I do it, I feel his pleasure, yeah. is, is I, can, I know how to teach, right? And it's mm-hmm. that thing. And not so much teach in terms of in a didactic way, but actually... Bit, uh, help people see who they are that's the mm-hmm. that's the mm-hmm. that's the gift that I've got mm. and so I was and 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 it was but if I hadn't gone into that environment I don't think I would have be been able to see know. it yeah, yeah that's right and it was amazing you know this provision would come I remember there was one ridiculous time where it was just before the christmas was coming and I was thinking I don't know where we're going to find the money to you know f- to feed the kids over christmas it was like it was that tense real. yeah it was real and it was about half past 4 in the morning I remember waking up and this sounds so stupid, again, I just, have spoiler alert, I apologise when he was listening to this, who is this idiot, but I actually heard this voice at HubSpot in the morning saying, get up and go downstairs and pray, lay hands on your fridge, and I'm like, that's not a normal <laughs> thing to do. It. Uh, yeah, that's so yeah, like well, well, listen, it's a thing, right, so I thought, listen, I was desperate, so you yeah. hear, you hear what you think God's yeah, telling to, yeah, to pray in yeah, the fridge, yeah. alright, that'll work for we'll me, because yeah. I'm going to pay for it, because <laughs> I ain't got no money. So I went downstairs, and I remember Praying at this, holding, putting my hands on this fridge, I've thinking. Got a real visual. <laughs> I'm Thinking, what is wrong with you, right? Yeah. Hayley's upstairs going. I'm trying to sleep, you know. <laughs> and anyway, about a week or maybe ten days later, I got a letter, and um, it was from a friend of mine. It said, "It was really a panic letter. It said 'Dipper, I'm really sorry.' Ellipsis, you know, explanation mark. I'm really, really sorry." About 10 days ago I was in the middle of a deep sleep and I was woken up and taken in this vision to a fridge and there you were standing by this fridge. There was you and there was God and there was me looking at the two of you and God said, fill the fridge up. He said, I'm so sorry. It's taken me so long to get around to you but please accept this check for 200 pounds. I hope this is enough to fill the fridge. See how God works. And then like, that's a crazy test. Yes. But it's, I, I, yeah, I it's promise you, I absolutely, I mean, who makes that up? But the yeah. fact is, it was like, damn, what was yeah, that? Yeah. Now, the fact is, I couldn't get up the next morning and do the same thing and 200 pounds yeah. tied up in the post. That's yeah. not how I found that it worked. Yeah. But it worked, that what was I was seeing was that when I needed something, there was this kind of odd, Provision it just turned up yeah, yeah. It's, it's like when I went to the Bible school I was I remember we I was running a sports fellowship so I was looking after all these um, um, footballers actually and there were these footballers that could come to faith and most of them were my that was the other reason why I became why I left the work because all the clients I was getting I was just <laughs> oh, <okay. laughs> so it's like, they would come to see me, and I would go about their finances, yeah, and I'd just yeah, tell yeah. them about the Lord, and they the would all go, yeah, I, could, I was like not interested in the financial services stuff, it was really funny, yeah. and um, so they all gathered together, we used to meet on a Monday night, and um, I came in on this Monday, and we, I was about to start the school on the following Monday, and I hadn't paid the fees, the fees were like, I don't know, I think it was £1,500, The it was quite a lot mm. back in those days, it was 95, and I was thinking, I know I'm going to get this figured out. I haven't worked out yet. So the, this, the bursar, a guy called Graham, stopped me in the um, hallway and he said, ah, I'm glad I've seen you. Can you pop and see me? I need to talk to you about something. I've got something for you. And I thought, oh, God, I don't know what he's going to say. He's got the, uh, he's, he, he's saying, you know, fees. Yeah. Yeah. you can't come in on Monday unless you've got the money, here's the invoice. So we went to this, I remember running the Bible study. The Bible study was about living by faith, right? Yeah. And <laughs> I, I felt such a fraud because I'm, I'm leading the Bible study. Yeah. And, I, and I just mentioned obliquely, in fact, to Garth Cruz, actually, about what was happening. Garth says to well, me, go and see the guy. I mean, you can't sit there They talk about faith. Yeah. And I went, yeah, 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 later. I'll, yeah. I'll do it tomorrow. And I said no, go and see him. So they said we're stopping the Bible study. Go and see the guy. So I went off into the to the thing, went to see the guy, and I said, oh sorry, Graham, I've got a break in the thing. Um, what can I do for you? And I was just about to say I'm working on the fees and it's all going to be great. I'm going to pay. And he said, oh, and he gave me this envelope. So he said, oh, this is for you. And I went, okay, thanks. And I kind of walked back to the thing, and uh, I thought, oh, phew, at least it, it, it. You know, I thought that was my thing of faith, right? So I get back into the room, and the guy said, what happened? So I said, so oh, he just wanted to give me a letter. I up. So I put it on the table, carried on this Bible And they said, are well, we going to open it? I went, yeah, yeah, later, later. Because I knew it was. It was a, it was a bill, right? Yeah. So they said, no, open it. So I went, okay, so I opened it. And they, so I think they were thinking, maybe we can pray about it. Or whatever mm. it so I opened it up, took out the letter, and it said, Dear Paul, we're pleased to tell you that an anonymous donor has paid your fees for the, for, for the next... Two <laughs> it was crazy. That's right. So it was, and those sorts of things yeah, happened to me all the yeah, time. Yeah. Yeah. And they were happening all the time. And it was kind of really weird. So, so I had to learn about that. And then, of course, what happens after that that was frustrating for me was I then came out of the Bible school, I then came out of the church, which was all very disappointing. Um, and I started this, the work, The Grace Project. Mm-hmm. And again, we had nothing. And because we had nothing, we just had to, we just, we just, we just live by, I mean, we live by faith. Yeah, yeah. A guy called... Live my, by faith, by force. Yeah. I, I, and and that, the problem was, and this was, the I think, the moral of the story for me, Damini, was that when I then was able to generate income again through consultancy, I stopped living by faith. Mm-hmm. I was living by my own... By your own strength, yeah. And that, that became a problem. And, and one of the things I think I'd love to be able to really understand would be, how do you find that connection between... Using the gifts and the talent you have, and, and, and simultaneously that being an expression of faith, not yeah. works. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And that's, that's 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 maybe the next chapter.
0: Mm. And so, um, yeah, tell us about the Stephen Lawrence project or Stephen, Stephen Lawrence charitable foundation. Yeah, also, so, you yeah, yeah,
1: well, it was it, it felt like it was going to be a great fit for me actually because I'd um, I'd run a um, a charity called Scar the sick Sun sun really for like twenty five years. So um, it sounds like you've always been.
0: Was it right out
1: of the orphanage. You've always had some sort of involvement in charity work. I just... Yeah, I mean, I might... Look, I don't like when people don't have... I, I'm, I'm obsessed about social justice. So, yeah. where there's injustice, I just kind of like... What can I do? How can yeah. I help? Um, can I talk? What can, what can you contribute? I can work. Yeah. I can talk. I can do that all day. And so, you know, I just... I, just, I can organise stuff. And so I've always been interested in that. And, and, and sickle cell is such a minority issue. Mm. You know, we've got... It's, it affects the African caribbean African Yeah, children. my aunt died from sickle cell. 5,000 billion a year died of it. It's yeah. serious. It's really serious. And when I started getting involved in sickle cell in sickle cell work, um, you weren't, how stupid is this? You weren't tested, couples weren't tested, to see whether they had sickle cell trait Because if two people meet together and they yeah. got sickle cell trait, there's one in four chance to get a sickle cell yeah. chart. Hello, they tested you after you'd had a baby. What? Yeah. Tea, tea what kind day? of nonsense yeah. is that? So, so I was very interested in that whole, whole area. Um, and in fact, the lady who is, uh, her name is Dame Sally Davis, who is the uh, chief, um, whatever she is, the head, top doctor in the chief medical officer. She was on the board with us, she was our oh, doctor. Okay. And um, anyway, so I'd done a lot of work in that space, voluntary for a long time. I'd also built up a whole kind of Uh, at that stage now I was running my own consultancy which was a lot of executive coaching and then I had this whole pastoral thing going on and all the rest of it and I was obviously doing a lot of public speaking Um, and it just felt like the Stephen Lawrence piece was something that really needed some support and obviously we're 25 years old from the death of Stephen Lawrence now Um, and um, when the role of chief executive came up it was actually come in a really perverse way because a friend of ours um, had had lunch with Hailey and said, oh, this, you should do this job, this job would be great for you. So Hayley and Hayley said, no, no, that's not my job, that's the job that Paul should do. So she said it to me, oh, I don't want to go work for somebody if I'm not interested in that. Yeah. She said, I said, you know I'm unemployable, it's a waste of time. So she said, no, I think this, this might be important for you. Anyway, the long and the short of it is, I went to see them and, um, you know, the rest is history. I was the chief executive there for a couple of years. So, sorry, when, when was it that you became chief so executive? So, I was there. Um, the big campaign that I, that I did was called the 1818 campaign. So, that was Stephen's 18th, uh, the 18th anniversary. anniversary, anniversary yeah, yeah, so I would have been there, gosh, I can't remember, 10,000, well, I, I, you know, I can't remember. If he's 20, it's 25th anniversary now. Yeah, he died in 19, I think. 19, so, you know, mate? Yeah, my, yeah, my brain is, is much right now. So it was, It was, and, I, and what I was interested in trying to do for the charity was move the charity off of the uh, purely the criminal justice agenda onto the social justice agenda. Mm-hmm. And so the whole thing was about, I talked about this whole notion of the Stevens and saying essentially my piece was about recognising that Stephen Lawrence was a, 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 just a nice young boy. Yeah. He wasn't gifted and talented at the super top end, he wasn't troubled he and was he kid. was just a normal kid. And my thesis was actually that, this, there was a Cinderella generation of black kids that actually, if they, they could be amazing if they had the intervention or they could drift. Yeah. So the question was, if Stephen would have survived the, that horrible night and got on the bus, yeah. Even if he got on the bus, he would still have faced a series of deadening social consequences yeah. that would have prevented him from being an architect, which is yeah, what he wanted what to, be. He was to be. And so, I was, so we were challenging the professions to begin to create opportunity and access, and my whole thing was about saying, what you have to understand is, the thing about our kids is that our kids are not educated like your kids. But that doesn't mean our kids aren't as intelligent as your kids. Mm-hmm. What our kids need is access and opportunity. So what you, I know from some of the profession, what you've done, it was about widening participation, mm-hmm. but within the professional services spaces. So we were setting up arrangements with, you know, the law firms, the, you know, the major circle law firms, the big mm-hmm. architects firms, and so on and so forth, to make sure that we could get young people of colour access into those communities. Mm-hmm. And I was also, interestingly enough, working, this was a bit before it was cool, but I was worried about white working class as well because I was Mm -hmm. seeing that being a real problem. And actually it just became another reframe of life in the orphanage. There were Mm -hmm. these black kids that were nice kids but circumstances were going to conspire against them. And the white working, the white left behind working class kids, they were kind of scrap in the the orphanages with us as well. And what we didn't have was we didn't have access and we didn't have an opportunity. And I think that's the thing, that perhaps is most driving in my mind, Damini. It's about how do you, how do you create access and opportunity for people that if you gave them the opportunity, mm. would do something with it. How do you do that? Yeah. And I think that's that's so that was why I was so interested in the Stephen Lawrence Trust, and I was also interested in um, the fact that at the time um, Dame Dorian Lawrence, as she is now, um, she really didn't have a voice within her own organisation, and that was something that was really troublesome to me. So I think hopefully I was able to help elevate her give her her voice and, and, and so forth, and that was great, but it was also you know it was a, it was a, it was a it was a tricky period as well in many ways because I think I mentioned before I'm, I'm unemployable and that yeah. was so that became quite difficult for us all but you know it served its purpose and then mm. um, but I, I was ready to leave and I think that was you know we were, that was good for us both the season we were, we were mm. together um, but yeah but then and they've gone on to do some good stuff and mm. um,
2: I, I
0: kind of wanted to touch on um, lastly, in terms of this, in terms of um, Stephen Lawrence and stuff, was obviously um, he was murdered by a bunch of white white kids, um, and the big the big thing that came out of it was kind of this that that the the fact that because they didn't get prosecuted in time and the institutional racism of the police force at the time and institutional racism in general, um, which is a big topic that. If I'm honest, I don't really want to talk about now. Um, but more what I'm concerned about, and I think it's quite pressing, particularly now in the last I think since the beginning of the year. I can't remember how many people have been murdered. Um, but the murder rate happening in, in, in London's like gone through the roof. It's crazy of late. Nearly fifty, isn't it? It's yeah, ridiculous, yeah. And the victims the victims are overwhelmingly black, the perpetrators are overwhelmingly black. Um you kind of spoke about it in terms of social justice, peace and access. I mean, I'm, I'm a big believer that, and this is a big point of the podcast, to be honest, is that I think a lot of young black people lack hope because they don't have access to a lot of, to anything really, that their, their hope is in misery. There's, there's nothing there. The, the the I think a lot of our positive messages are, are dead, dead ends. I don't know how else to put it. It's like a lot of drug dealers you know, that, that's a positive thing in terms of all the money, all the cars, all the girls, all the jewels, all the whatever. But that's a dead end in of itself. And I don't think many people really hope beyond my age. I'm, I'm 27. Like, I don't think many young people really see themselves getting to my age even, or w- what they're going to be doing at my age. Um, I don't know, I just wanted to get your perspective on that. What What you think
1: some of the solutions might be to... To what's going on now? First and foremost, I think that the I think your generation and the generation that you know is coming up after you, um, who I worry about a lot actually, I think are uh, um, I, I was I was groomed, and my generation of orphans were groomed by sexual predators. I think you guys are being groomed by uh, social entrepreneurs. Definitely. Actually, I actually meant <laughs> to say that earlier, we you yeah. were talking about I framing, think, because it was so I vivid, think. That's, I think so vivid, yeah. yeah, I think you're being groomed right. in a completely different way than mm. the way we were being groomed, and, and I think it's all altogether, at least as dangerous, maybe mm. even more dangerous. Um, so I think that's one thing. Um, I think that the, uh, the problem for a young black boy, particularly, and I think the statistics will prove to you, that the, the, the kind of optimism scale, the optics look better for black girls, girls than they do for black boys, I think there's a whole issue about that, that the education Mm -hmm. system is just not designed to support the young black boy, it just Mm -hmm. isn't. And I think that's a really serious issue we've got to to grips with. But I think also because, if I can say this, and this is kind of a big social comment that, you know, I can't necessarily stand up, but I kind of feel the case. I think that the, I think the social, the the, the education system, the white education system is, is afraid of black men. Right, and in, and in, 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 in not so much the same. It's, I think it's different mm-hmm. with black women, if I may say that. So I think that the, um, I think I have to, I'd have to say something quickly, and only quickly about the about the institutional racism thing, because I think that's really interesting. I think it's important. Yeah, it's really important because I think mm-hmm. that the, I think that racism is at a much higher frequency now than when I was your age. I think that the, the, the bias is at a higher frequency, it's much more sophisticated, mm-hmm. um, I mean the American experience and the UK experience is different anyway yeah. because we institutionalise everything, yeah. they smile and they hear yeah, Interesting, yes, my
0: first, um, my f- the first interviewee I had, she's a uh, half African American, half Puerto Rican woman, oh, wow. who's lived in London for the last 15 years and her first comment about racism was that in race racism in America, they, they do it to your face. Oh, it's brutal. Racism over here, as you said, is completely institutionalised, and you can never really... You know, I, I spoke about my experience at school and so on and so forth, but it's never overt that you can call it out for what it is, but it's, it's sufficiently ingrained in the system that if you're a victim of it, you feel it every day, but you can never say, this is the this is what the problem is as such, which I guess is what the Macpherson inquiry kind of... Well, yeah, I mean, I think Macpherson
1: was really interesting and I, th- I, th- I think that, yeah, a quick thing about Macpherson, I'll come back to Macpherson in a second, but yeah. I think the thing about what's clever about the way that um, institutional racism works is that institutional racism um, works by a kind of slow, feed-dripping stereotyping. Mm. And the thing that's fascinating about stereotypes is that even the people that are part of the stereotype assume the stereotype. Right? You, yeah, definitely, yeah. So I, 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 I often, I can remember, I've heard this, heard this a thousand times from you know, really high-end, top corporate black professionals. And we might be meeting to go out and they'll say, oh, we're gonna, go and, we're gonna go to so-and-so, we're gonna meet at Mango Rooms or whatever it mm. is. And they'll go, that's seven o'clock, white, white men's TV time. Carpet, yeah. Right, and cool. what then? What they're saying with that is that we, even as black professionals, own the stereotype that black people turn up, turn up late. Yeah, yeah. but as professionals... I don't turn up late. Yeah, I'm a black person. I'm not on time. What are you talking about? Yeah. But 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 you see what I'm saying? But yeah. once you once sorry once you, once you once you own that, then you begin to buy into into some quite interesting trouble. But the stereotyping is so interesting, and the way that bias works is so fascinating. Um, do, you, do you remember the? Um, do you remember the story recently of a guy called Robert Kelly, who was uh, on the BBC News and he was giving a television interview, he sat there and and a child came in while he was on the was. Yeah, 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 and they assumed that the, the, the wife was his nanny or something Correct. like that. Yeah, 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 The first child come in, he yeah. kind of waves the child away and carries on to the business. Then the second yeah. child comes in, he waves the child away. Yeah. And then the, 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 uh, this Filipino woman, yeah, the woman comes, comes in. in yeah. So I was talking at a conference. Now, bear in mind, I ran a practice about inclusion, so yeah. hold that in mind. So I've run a practice about inclusion. I've seen this already. I'd already seen it, and I was speaking at this conference for this company called Shoe. You know the um, the shoe company. Yes, yeah, the yeah, S. That's I was, yeah, A-S- that's right. I was talking at their conference this year, and the managing director had gone before me, and his presentation was talking about it's been a strange year, you know, and he and he had this clip, and I turned to the guy who was next to me, and I went, "She's so fired." Right, mm-hmm. um, he was one of my uh, colleagues, and he went, She's the wife, yeah. Right, and I thought, Hold on, I've seen this video yeah. before, right? I've seen it, I knew what happened in this video, mm-hmm. but the problem was, it was to me, I, it, everything about that scene said, You, don't, you, don't you two don't belong exactly. together as a couple, and if exactly. you are a couple. That's going to be sort of, a very really yeah. weird relationship, yeah. right? Because so, so it was. It was interesting. But, but I'm saying, and I think what I'm saying is that we, we walk around in those clothes yeah, as black as black people. Definitely. We work as people of color, and so I think that that is difficult for us to shift because when you're going to then disadvantage us, you don't have to disadvantage us because we do it for ourselves mm-hmm, mm-hmm. because we don't perceive ourselves in those kind of roles. We don't can perceive ourselves. In the chief executive role, in the uh, the leading role, or whatever, we because we still see ourselves as the help, yeah. And and the world will will will, will, will we'll we'll, treat we'll, yeah, that's right. Future. But the world will enable that for us, yeah. right? Yeah, so you can fun. you know you can be a Jessica Grannis Hill, and yeah, yeah, great, yeah. you know. But you're not any threat to anybody. But once you start kind of breaking into establishment areas, yeah. it becomes quite interesting. Mm. So um, so so back to MacPherson. What was interesting about MacPherson was. So just just for context, for anybody who doesn't know them, at first an inquiry
0: was the, I guess, white paper or paperwork that came out from the Stephen Lawrence case and and was the big thing in calling out the Met for being institutionally racist. That's right. That was the reason why I think the two... I think only two people ever got convicted in the end, but it took such a long time and there was a whole faff about it. But the point being is I think it was the first time kind
1: of the establishment really... Saw and accepted the the term of institutional racism. Exactly, exactly right. Yeah. And and it was interesting. And the, of course, what followed from that was the two thousand and ten Equality Act. that yeah, was that was, yeah. the, that was generated from that. Um, interesting. Yeah. I was the chief executive when um, those boys were prosecuted. That was a, that oh, was that was oh, my oh, okay. that was when I was oh. the chief executive.
0: Must have been a nice. Um, yeah, must was, have been a
1: good feeling for the. It was not. It was interesting. It yeah. was kind of like. Yeah, and it's was 18 years too late, of course, yeah. I mean, the whole another story. Yeah. But what, what I found interesting about the whole story with the Met was that one of my biggest corporate clients is the Met Police now. Okay. And I have worked with the board, I've worked with all of the chief officer groups, so all the senior people within the Met I've worked with one way or another, from the commissioner all the way through. And here's what I found out. They're not all institutionally racist, right? Well, not all institutionally no. yeah. <laughs> Right? Any more than all black people are muggers. Mm. <laughs> right. but mm. unfortunately mm. that's the narrative that we've created mm. that's the story we've created and so actually there are some I mean, unbelievably great people working in the Met Police um, and it feels like that the stories that we're telling that are being told, that are being retailed are actually preventing us from ever oh, by the way, of course there are some idiots that work in yeah. the Met Police and of course there is some. Um, I've done work with them where I've been very challenging with them about their statistics about black officers and mm. all the rest of it it's not correct to, to say that um, every person that works Obviously, with them, yeah. that's not correct. Yeah. That's not correct. It is correct to say that we all have biases and we will have prejudgments and we all have stereotypes. Mm. But guess what? Black people have them too. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Now, so there's a the whole lot to be said yeah. about it. But, but I think that the, um, I think in it, our, our job, it feels to me, um, as, and I think now about my as a grandparent, for example, is the thing I spend most of my time with my grandchildren, or particularly my oldest grandchild granddaughter who's 12, is talking to her about possibility, about about not allowing her to become conditioned by a system that mm-hmm. sees her you know that has her, her job prospects are you know X, y, and Z. either either you're gonna well she you know she's going she, her way out is to be a wag. You know, mm-hmm. to be a celebrity. I mean, that's terrifying when you think about the most popular career choice of children at school is to be a celebrity. That is just mm-hmm. terrifying. Mm-hmm. Um, or you know, from if, if a black boy is not a footballer or a rapper or whatever else, then what you know, what is he? What's he going to do? And I and I think that for me, it's about us saying, can we can we redefine really this, please? Can we have a conversation with our community where we actually start to talk about our self worth? And this mm-hmm. is why I this I think. I think this is why I, I was in an orphanage because, I think that when I was in the orphanage, I knew I wasn't an orphan. In, I, I, I got, I had the same, I, I had the same shadow, and so I still had to live with it. Um, but I knew I wasn't going to be conformed into the shapes that the orphans. Future was set out to be mm. right because we were told, you know, you, you, if you, you get a job and maybe if you can work in a factory, that'll be good. Because the other choice is if you don't work in a factory, you're probably going to go to prison. And so the bar was set so, so low, low for yeah. us, right? And I think that for me now, um, I want to um, help our community to recognize everything's possible, mm. whatever you want, you can be whoever you want to be. That's mm. that's there's nothing to stop you with that. And and it's lifting it, it it's about. Um, it's about what can we do as a community, and I think Hidden Figures is fantastic. I think mm. the work you do is fantastic. I think who you are mm. is fantastic, just the way you are, mm. and just as just your way of being is fantastic. But what can we do together to help to remove the limiting beliefs mm. that so restrict the aspiration of our community? Mm. And, and I think it's about access and it's about opportunity. You don't know what you don't know. Right, mm-hmm. and so what I want to do is I want to be able to, whether it's in a faith environment, whether it's in a, 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 a whether, whether the issue is about our, our ethnicity, about our background, just to, to to say to us we can be anything we want to be. Um, I'm living proof of that, you know. Mm. I've been all over the world, spoken all over the world, done all sorts of different things, um, and it's not to say, oh yeah, you're exceptional. No, I'm not exceptional. I just refuse to believe what you. I refuse mm. to be to be in the to be. Health, yeah. yeah, I refuse. To, I refuse intensity. that. Mm, I refuse that. Um, so penultimately, because I don't want to
0: keep you for too long, and I know no, time is 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 ticking. Um, if you could just quickly tell us about two things in terms of your spiritual life. No, no. I guess the corporate side of your spiritual life, one of better term, um, is the Grace Project. Um, if you could tell us a bit about that, and then after that, if you could tell us a bit about IGC. Um, as the people in the camera probably don't know, but we're, we're here in, in 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 our church in yeah. Burnt hope um, so if you could if you don't mind just telling us a bit about no what, what the grace project was, what you did there,
1: mm-hmm. um and the kind of stuff you've been doing here for for the community as well as for the church sure, members. sure. so I mean, the grace project was set up Heley and I set it up in this is my wife in two thousand, and uh, what we were interested in is essentially we wanted to support disappointed Christians, mm-hmm. so we were seeing there was a whole bunch of Christians that were used to go to church and didn't go anymore, and they'd just been burnt out and disappointed. And we would say, yeah, there's a reason for that. Um, and the reason for that is that you have been... Um, uh, you've, con- you've confused a religion for a relationship. And actually, that you have been uh, sold the idea that there's something you can do to make God love you more than he really does. Mm-hmm. And if you stop doing this particular something, he'll stop loving you. Mm-hmm. And that's just not true. And so we, we were having this big conversation about how you um, move people from, essentially, from law this of this, this notion of if to grace which is all about since and so the grace project started in 2000 and um, we had us we built little communities here and there in, in London in America in, in Brazil um, in Finland in you know various different places in the world where we would travel and wrote some books the bonsai conspiracy and various different books to help people kind of get themselves free of that of that limiting belief of mm-hmm. of, 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 of God and themselves, and then um, in around six years ago, I think it was, um, the lovely couple Wilbur and Miriam, of course, you know very well, um, came to us and said, um, you know, that they were really, and would we would we come and help the church here, the church that they'd moved to, and we knew them from a while ago, and we weren't, we actually weren't leading a church at that time because we decided to stop, and we just wanted to, we didn't really want to run churches for reasons that we we just kind of thought they'd run out of gas. And um, so we said we'd come and help in a mirror, just you know, on a kind of ad hoc basis. But then I felt like the Lord was saying, "This this is a, there's something for you to be doing here," and I wasn't really, I didn't really want to do it if I be perfectly honest with you, because it was just, yeah. it was just long. Was just, yeah, yeah, just yeah. yeah hopefully. I just didn't <laughs> want to do it. Um, but I knew God was wanting to do something. But what I hadn't bargained for was that it was going to be my own shift, because the shift had become moving from law and grace to a shift to love and justice
2: mm. because
1: the thing that I'd heard, which, which actually I hadn't mentioned to you, but I don't think I've spoken to, yeah, to you about this. When I started the Grace Project, what I felt the Lord say to me was, there's two things I want you to do. One is I want you to build a community by grace alone. That's the one thing. Mm-hmm. But the other thing I need you to do is test this theory. And I want you to test this theory, and it's this. We know that black people will go to a white-led church. Mm. But what we don't know is will white White people go to a black-led church? Did I I talk about that? Um, And that was really a big theme for me. And I thought, oh, well, of all the people in the world who might know how to do that, with my background, I've got a chance. And so the notion was was very important to me about having this inclusive community where Mm. it didn't matter who you were whether male, female you know they black, white, gay, straight, it was irrelevant, you just you there was this sense of you're just included. Mm. I used to call the Grace Project the Will and Grace Project at yeah. one stage because yeah. we had so many people from the arts, <laughs> and it was hilarious, it was brilliant, but they found yeah. acceptance and the whole great mm. so uh, but then I think I got kind of stuck in a bit of a groove, and the groove was very much about um, the groove was about law and grace, and I kind of felt that. It wasn't necessarily producing life. It wasn't generating life. It, people were free, and that was good. But it wasn't necessarily producing new life in them, and that was really prob- problematic to me. Anyway, when we came here, suddenly this kind of opportunity opened up in, to to me that I hadn't really thought about, and I felt like God saying, "This is important." So what we decided to do here was what, and I was you know beginning to talk to the to the elders of, from your father, of course, as well, about this. Possibilities here was to say, what if this place was a place where we actually did two things? We improved the spiritual well-being of the people that identified with this community, and by that I was talking about helping people to be deprogrammed from their religious paradigm mm-hmm. and and to understand this you know outrageous notion of the love of God. And of course, some went, some came, mm-hmm. some stayed. Um, probably more went than stayed, but you know whatever. It, is what it is, it is what it is. That was what it was supposed to be, um, and that was fine. And then we had this amazing asset, we had this building. Uh, and this building is an extraordinary place, a 90 year old building um, that has its roots in social justice. That mm-hmm. we, so I discovered that Sir John Lang, who built the M1, he owned this church, and they used to have a thousand children in the Sunday school mm-hmm. and all the rest of it. Uh, but we're in this grindingly poor area, neighbourhood in Barnet, where this life expectancy in this particular part of the ward is seven years young, less than people in other parts of the ward. So if you live in yeah, Hampstead Garden suburb, you're, yeah. you're yeah. going to live seven years longer than if you live here. Okay. Right? Yeah. If you live here, 50% of the children who live here are uh, 50% yeah. of the children under five are in child poverty. Mm. There's fuel poverty, there's food poverty. It's all kind of, it's, it's outrageous yeah. what's happening here. So I thought to myself, do you know... Because Barnet's such a rich
0: bar in general, it kind of... I, I've always felt like this part
1: burnt oak kind of just gets a bit forgotten and a bit lost because it's like well the rest is good absolutely, yeah. absolutely. I've been writing about it recently and talking about it being the sinkhole of the community and literally yeah. it is a sinkhole and I think that and so, so what we've started to do is we've said, okay, let's look at what we could do with this building. We've got this amazing building. Uh, and over the last few years, we've been kind of slightly repurposing. It'd been massively neglected for 30, mm. 30-odd years. But we've now started to, you know, by God's grace, this money's turned up, which yeah. is, like, back, in, back to the fridge. Yeah, yeah. And... Um, We've now got this partnership with this group called the Real Junk Food Project in mm-hmm. London. So, we have, so we've taken literally, what we've done is the, the, the estate, if you like, is a two-story church, a building to the right and a building to the left. So we've given the, we've, we've got a long-term tenant in the, one of the small buildings and they run a um, thing called Barnet uh, Youth Foundation, which is great. So they're doing charitable work, about raising uh, awareness of where to get funding for youth work in the borough we've got over in this small the Re- the love Burnt Oak resource centre as we call it we've, and love burn oak is the is the charity we yeah. created which and the, the the driver for that is about Um, Burnt Oak an inclusive a thriving inclusive community that people love and the challenge is how do you turn Burnt Oak into that a thriving inclusive community that people love and we think that we can be the engine for that so we have a community kitchen uh, we have like a community supermarket uh, we're starting community homework clubs we're having things like performing arts are going to start coming in through Mm -hmm. here we're having a conversation about potentially turning the church into a community theatre we've just taken Barnet TV community TV in there and so this is like this hub of yeah, a, kind of the hub of the community. Yeah, turn the church into exactly the centre of the and community. What, and so, and yeah. that's exactly right. And what's really interesting is that recurring themes are coming up: the arts, the creative mm. arts, social justice. But suddenly, it feels like you've now got this space where you can kind of bring it all into in yeah, one place. Yeah, and it's actually here. And not only not only is the stuff here, but the, like the people who need the services here too. Yeah. So it kind of feels like, in, in a way, I mean, it feels like. It feels to me like Stephen Lawrence meets the Grace Project meets social justice mm. meets you know what we really should be doing. So I'm kind mm. of excited about it. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you very
0: much. Um, just finally, um, a question that we liked or two questions we like to ask, or I say we, I like to ask all of my guests are um, one, if you could go back to around my age, so let's take 25 as a nice age, if you could go back to 25, what advice would you give yourself? Um, And then following on from that, for a generation of millennials um, that are listening, because the whole idea of this is a conversation between millennials and the older
1: generation, what advice would you give us? Wow, if I could go back to being to 25, well, at an entirely... You, you were an old 25-year-old, don't you? Not 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 yeah, that's age. right, so that's not really yeah. helpful. <laughs> My answer would have been I would have bought that flat in Pimlico, <laughs> <laughs> and I would never need to work again. Because <laughs> it was £45,000, and it would Jesus, be worth... It's crazy. Can you it's imagine crazy. that? I would have bought that flat you in Pimlico. Exactly. That grieves me every time I think about that. Um, if I go back to being 25, I think if I, go back, if I would go back to being 25... Um, it would probably be the same thing that I would want to say to you as millennials, actually, mm-hmm. which is um, I would um, I would first want to begin to get a better sense of who I really was if, uh, because I hoped when I was 25 um, that what I did would make me who I was mm-hmm. Whereas I discovered that who I am determines what I do. Mm-hmm. And I think that's probably the biggest shift in my mind. As a 25-year-old, I thought what I did would define who I was. And so if I worked hard and I got a job and I you know, had a house and had a dog and two kids and you know, had, went was part of the Rotary Club, then I'd be middle class or whatever else it, it might be. Um, and we did, we had a house in Surrey, we didn't have a dog, we had four kids, we did all the rest of it. But it didn't, it didn't define who I was in the slightest. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas when I um, came to a greater sense of knowing who I was, then everything began to flow. See, I don't try and just the story I was just telling you. I don't. I, I didn't come here thinking, oh, well, we can set this up as a community theatre. We can use performing arts. We can use mm. social. The first thing from my mind. I thought, why am I here? Why don't I want to be here? What the hell am I doing in this place? But I don't know what the hell is this place for? But I just. Was who I am, yeah, and stuff just kind of happens without yeah. that. Yeah, and it's just, what do you do? Yeah. So I think that would be my thing. I think that, um, I think that, um, the biggest problems, the biggest problem that millennials have, is that they have baby boomers as their parents. Um, I think that's a massive problem for millennials. They have people like me as their parents, and we're not, we're a problem because um, what happened was that we, we I think we re reacted against our parents, mm. and I think our children I are then mean, you know it's it's difficult. So I, I think the, I think it's I think it's the weight of expectation that sits sits on on the millennials because of the weight of expectation we put upon them. Mm. It's 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 not your disappointment to manage. Yeah. I, I, so I think yeah. that I think that um, <clears throat> I think that I think it's important that you somebody. Uh, let me sorry. Let me answer slightly different way. I, I I read a I read a Father's Day card that was published that said, um, "My father never told me what to do. Instead, he lived his life in front of me and mm-hmm. let me watch." And I think that my advice to your generation is. Uh, respect what your parents have told you to do, be your highest self and live your life in front of them and let them watch
2: mm-hmm.
1: and uh, that 's that's probably quite a, quite a good thing to, quite a good thing to do but um, i can 't tell you not to make the same mistakes and repeat the mistakes of history because unfortunately it kind of seems to be the yeah. way it is. but I do think that there are some interesting things that millennials are interested in that my generation wasn 't, and I think that the, th- the thing that my generation tried to correct too late was the idea of work-life balance. I think the millennial could do themselves a great favour if they realised it's actually just about balance. Mm. It's not about work-life balance, it's just about balanced, life yeah. balanced. Yeah.
0: Well, thank you very much, Paul. It's been, it's been wonderful having you yet again. Um, the first one was really good. The second one's been really good. Thank you. Um, yeah. I mean, I I can't help it. Every time I have one of these, I always end up going on about why I think this podcast is so important. But um, and it was interesting because you kind of said it in in response to uh, my question around the violence that's happening um, is just the importance of hope, the importance of the the importance of options, the importance of seeing yourself somewhere, um, and you know I'm so grateful. I th- I think I think. Because of the person I am, because of the uni I went to, um, because of the worlds I've been exposed to, I've been fortunate to know a lot of really successful black British um, people, but I realise that a lot of you just go completely under the radar. Nobody knows you, nobody's heard about you. Um, you're not exactly going around tooting your own horns. Um, and, you know, it's, it's, it's not... Obviously, we're grateful for your contribution, but you know, whilst whilst this is to celebrate you, it's not it's, it's not just to celebrate you. It's, it's I just think it's so important for my generation to hear what you're doing. You know, last week the the person I interviewed before you, um, she's got an MB for reversing the effects of female genital mutilation. Wow. That's that's wow. Do you understand what wow. I'm saying? Wow. Uh, I spoke to somebody else who's an angel investor. Um, who else have I spoken to I've spoken to another person but my mind's gone blank anyway but the point that I'm making is just there's so many options I've, I'm interviewing a lawyer next week the week after that I'm interviewing someone who's got like a leadership school for, for, for um, ethnic minorities the week after that I've got the president of women in business and finance it's just there's, there's so many different things that we could be doing um, but all we see is kind of the the pigeonholed few things of sport and entertainment um, both of which I think are important um, you know some of my best friends are sports. well in fact my two best friends one is one's an athlete and the other one's a musician so um, I'm definitely not downplaying that at all but I'm just saying there's so many different things we could be and I think a lot of young people do fall into a state of despair when they can't be either of those two things um, and so it's just important to hear 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 from you, hear from other people about your stories, about your journey. And the other thing I wanted to mention as well is I think often we become too concerned about, and I want to say this carefully, but we we become too concerned about institutional racism and all the forces against us. Um, And we have a tendency not to think about what we can still do to overcome those forces and how the generation before us have had to overcome much worse to be honest um or at least the same thing in a slightly different way but have managed to go on to, to 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 whatever heights they've achieved so yeah thank you i i, I really appreciate you coming no, down it's a pleasure yeah i i really hope this 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 um this week's session the last one um is really impactful to, for 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 all my listeners
1: um, and I pray I get a good following. May from there be many. Um, yeah, yeah there be many. There will be. It's a great. It's a great. It's a great thing you're doing. And do you know, um, if I can just a P.S. I'm just thinking, of, as I was listening to you. I think if, if apart from the Pimlico thing when I was 25, yeah. it would be that I don't don't let other people define you.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: That would be the thing that not to 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 find yourself so you can be internally not externally referenced that other people don't define who you are, and other people don't define good for you. Because mm. people define good for me and the bar was too low. Mm. You know, um, I might define good for me and the bar was too high, but I'd rather the bar be too high. Mm.
0: Mm. Thank you very much, Paul. <laughs> Wonderful. <laughs> Wonderful. <laughs> Wonderful. Until next time.